Uh, before I start, Melissa, on behalf of the, on behalf of myself and also from the members of the Finance Committee, I would like to express our condolences to your family loss and your bereavement and the rest of it. And I want you to pass on your our best wishes to your family and to yourself, and to tell you you are in our thoughts and our prayers. Thank uh, the committee as well, uh, both for your letter of condolence um, and, and the messages that I received from other members of the committee too. Uh, it was greatly appreciated, uh, and I think that we all know that the death of one's mother, just uh, the experience that that is, and it was of great comfort to uh, my family as well to receive so many uh, lovely messages of condolence. So thank you again, Chair. Thank you very much, Melissa. And if now we move on to the, if we proceed through the agenda, uh, as I say with apologies, I think we record Jim's uh, late arrival as a late arrival, right, and, and I have a no. Pat, have you heard anything from um, uh, Philip? Good to see you, Philip's here. Pat, have you heard anything from Matthew? No, I tried ringing him as well, Chair. I heard nothing from Matthew. Okay. So I would expect him to be here. He's late. That's okay. No, we just received an email that he's late. That's okay. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, sort of, uh, Peter, you want to make a comment about um, delegation authority under temporary standing order one one five? Cheers. Thank you, Chairperson. Um, members, just to remind members that uh, if they find themselves unable to attend the meeting and they wish to delegate authority, they need to tell the clerk themselves. Um, a text, uh, an email, um, WhatsApp, anything will do, but it just it has to come from the member themselves. That's why, otherwise, it's it's not valid. So, uh, uh, just to be clear on that, thanks, Chairperson. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Uh, declaration of interest. Uh, is there any uh, declarations of interest on any items on this agenda? Disagreed. Nod. Agreed. Uh, Draft minutes of proceedings on the 20th of January 2021. Uh, just before I talk about the draft minutes, you'll be aware that there's been a push um, towards more use of Starleaf and going for virtual um, uh, meetings. One of the things that I have expressed concern and I've expressed concern through the committee liaisons group as well, or the chairman's liaisons group, is that sometimes some members are not fully hearing all the discussions. And indeed, I have been on a committee recently where I am not going to be able to say that I agree to the minutes because I did not hear everything that was said during that meeting because of breakdowns in the system as well. I just want to say that we haven't experienced that in this committee, with the exception, I think, when we were receiving evidence or reference to do with the fire safety regulations. And I think we should. I will pass that on to the. I shall pass that on on the committee's behalf to both the chairperson's liaisons group and also to the uh, commission who are looking at some of these issues as, as we come through as well. I just want you to be aware of that. Are we having uh, read the minutes for the meeting on the 20th of January? Are we content with those? Yes. All those say agree, say agreed. 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 We're great. The minutes will be published on the website. There are no matters arising. And as I let the uh, deputy chair in his Arctic clothing sort of disrobe himself, that's a very fine sort of uh, outdoor jacket there, Paul. We even had this too. Yeah. <laughs> Is Pamela here, or is she? Jeff's. Uh, I think they should be dialing in. Um, so Jeff is there, but uh, I didn't see Pamela yet. Jeff, can you hear us? 
Okay, I'll assembly broadcasting to our Jeff McGuinness to the spotlight. And Pamela as well. Is Pamela coming to join us? Jeff, is Pamela coming to join us or is she coming in on spotlight too? She should be coming in on spotlight. Okay, we'll just see if we can bring her up. She's not there, so uh, does he want to start? I think Jeff's leading in. Look, Jeff, you're leading with this uh, discussion anyhow, and we all know ourselves well enough for you to crack on. So can you sort of give your presentation and then we'll sort of ask the questions as we go through? Certainly, Chair. Uh, to speak on January monitoring and assist the committee with its scrutiny of the 2021 in-year budgetary position. Committee members may recall that following announcements of further allocations in November, we were holding approximately 26.6 million for contingency until the end of the financial year. On the 23rd of December, Treasury increased the guaranteed COVID-19 funding for 2021 to 3 billion, providing an additional 200 million pounds. The Minister has indicated that he is pressing Treasury for agreement to carry this forward to next year, though it has not been built into the January monitoring round. As the £200 million will be sufficient to cover the £150 million cost of further rate support next year, the funding that was held centrally for this was made available for allocation in January monitoring. The Economy Department confirmed that the £60 million that was held centrally for business support was needed. The Infrastructure Minister brought forward proposals to use the 6 million held centrally for support to the private transport sector. The money set aside for support to ferry companies was held to be transferred to the Department for Transport in England and that transfer has now taken place. The amount requested by DFT was 308k, so there was a small amount of £42,000 that was made available in this monitoring round. There are a number of COVID reduced requirements from departments totaling £219.2 million resource deal and £10.5 million financial transactions capital. Revised estimates of costs of previously announced rates relief uh, made £46.4 million available for reallocation as well. As a result, total COVID funding available for the January monitoring round was £509.8 million. In terms of bids and allocations, the departments identified £215.6 million of resource stale COVID pressures. Executive agreed allocations for all COVID Sorry, bids Jeff, submitted. Just a quick one. Did you say £508 million? £509.8. £509.8. And that's an increase on the 435 therefore, that the Minister briefed us on on Monday? So that was the, at the beginning of the January monitoring round. So the 400 is is. Um, at the conclusion of the monitoring round, we'll, we'll get onto that. Okay. So, in terms of um, allocations, the executive agreed allocations for all COVID bids submitted. Uh, for DFE, in addition to the 60 million from the centrally held funds, 94.5 million was allocated for a range of measures to support business, tourism, and hospitality, further in higher education, and to replace European Social Fund funding. For the Department of Education, a total of 7.5 million for both the response to COVID and costs associated with restarting education in schools. Uh, for the Department of Finance, a total of 101.6 million pounds was allocated, 100 million of which is to continue the financial assistance scheme in view of the new restrictions, with 0.6 million providing rates relief to newspapers. 
Um, for the Department for Infrastructure, in addition to the six million held centrally, that was allocated to them. 12.1 million was allocated for lost income and PPE costs. This left 294.2 million available to provide further support in the coming days. Executives agreed granting flexibility requested by the economy and education ministers to reallocate funding from one specific COVID measure to another related measure to help ensure that support is provided where needed and that spend occurs in this financial year. Turning to um, the more general January monitoring funding and pressures, departments had identified 93.9 million pounds of resource dale. 55.7 million capital bail and a total of 12 million financial transactions capital reduced requirements. It is a high amount of reduced requirements at this late stage of the year, although there are some mitigating circumstances given the impact of the pandemic and the uncertainty it has created. Um, there's 110, that meant 110.7 million resource dial, 46.4 million capital dial, and 55.7 million of FTC of non-COVID funding available for allocation in January monitoring. Sorry, Department sorry, could you just, been, just give me that FTC figure again, Jeff. 55.7 million. That's after the 30 million has gone to Ulster University for its bottomless York Road pick. That is after an allocation to the university in October. I wasn't asking you to make a comment on the bottomless York Road pit. I was just saying that. just seems to be where our entire FTC budget seems to disappear into. Right. Okay, keep going. Uh, departments have bid for £98.2 million of resource bail, £24.2 million capital bail of non covid rated pressures in January monitoring. A bid for 4K, £4,000 of FTC was also received from EO. Treasury has provided funding in relation to expected credit loss, accrued annual leave, and project stratum. So bids for these have not been considered for allocation from executive funds. Northern Ireland Protocol funding this year is confirmed at 29.9 million, rather than the figure of 30.3 million in the paper reflecting a, a reduction in lead. The executive has agreed allocations for all other bids submitted, totaling 58.4 million resource style, 18.1 million craft style, and 4,000 pounds of financial transactions capital. Okay. In terms of the detail of those allocations in January monitoring, for DERA, 3.5 million um, was allocated to them for financial discipline reimbursement due from the EU, while discussions are ongoing for a mechanism for this. For the Department for Economy, 9.7 million was allocated for higher education quality research and FE colleges pay remit. For the Department for Infrastructure, 45 million was provided to provide certainty and resilience for the driver and vehicle agency at TransLink. Both allocations help ease pressures and can be proposed in the context of results available this year. For the public, public prosecution service, there was 0.3 million for dilapidation costs. Uh, in terms of capital deal, uh, the Department, for uh, Department of Education received 18.1 million for costs of providing ICT to the Education Authority and to carry out minor works across the education sector. In terms of outcome, Chair, significance of non-COVID funding remain unallocated, with a total of between the two 
areas, 346.4 million resource, 28.3 million capital, and 55.7 million FTC unallocated at this stage in the year. There is a higher than usual risk of funding being returned to Treasury as unspent at the end of the financial year. Mm-hmm. There's a number of factors where we are um, planning for mitigation in that, those areas. Firstly, we're awaiting the outcome of discussions with Treasury on the carry forward of unspent funding. But it is imperative that we press ahead and consider further plans for this funding and not rely on uh, an agreement from Treasury. In that context, the executive has agreed to reconvene on this issue. and The minister has called for further bids to be brought forward by his executive colleagues. The committee may be aware of a number of these being announced in the press recently. I anticipate that further allocations will be made by the executive in coming days as, as they consider further proposals. Uh, happy to take questions. Okay, uh, thanks, Jeff. And obviously, there there is an awful lot of questions. Uh, bearing in mind, we're now talking about a the minister briefed us that he was getting a flat cash budget coming into year, and yet we're at the end of this year's budget, and we've got a surplus of five hundred and nine million uh, to be allocated in a very very short space of time. Look, there are some real sort of significant questions we have, but the first one I have is this question around the Treasury and discussions with the Treasury. There seems to be an implication in a lot of the discussions that there will be a large degree of carryover, but I'm not seeing from any indications from any sources anywhere else that the Treasury, treasury are amenable or even are aware of the full extent of the, I think now, $509 million we're talking about. So, can you update us on the discussions which are going with the Treasury? Because, look, it's all well and good in saying that these discussions are ongoing, but we're now at the end of January. We have t- potentially two months to spend half a billion pounds, and unless there's a plan to do that effectively, what we're going to end up doing is we're just going to be doing into we're going to have money put into pet projects, and one of the big, most significant issues we have at the moment. And my biggest concern is that we have no real oversight of how this money has got to this point, and also to the fact that things like the Department of the Economy don't seem to be able to get the money out that's been allocated to them. And we still have had no direction on what's happening with the £95 million sort of voucher scheme and how that is likely to be um, bottomed out or put out. And those are really significant questions. Can you give us some sort of views on those and where we are on that? Certainly, Chair. Um, so, just to, to confirm that uh, it's £346.4 million pounds of resource, uh, £28.3 million capital, and 55.7 of FTC unallocated at the end of the monitoring round, the 509.8 related to COVID at the start of that particular round. So, um, but, but you're right, this is a, a significant amount of money. Um, and obviously, there are a number of areas where we're trying to mitigate that, one of which is the Treasury um, route. So, uh, we have been in touch with Treasury, we've been in contact with Treasury on um, pressing them for additional flexibility and carry forward. Um, very much the case of we, we don't want to be um, penalised for trying to do the right thing with the money uh, just because it ends up. A, being allocated a few days later than the 31st of March, for instance. So we're doing our best to make sure, Chair, that that, that funding, um, the Treasury aware of those issues. We had anticipated the Treasury would provide a, a view on this carry forward. Um, 
actually this week. So we are we are anticipating that at any day. Um, you'll be aware that the minister, along with his devolved administration counterparts, have written to the Treasury on this specific issue. Um, so as well as engaging with the Treasury at official level, we're doing so at ministerial level as well. So we're trying our, our, our best to uh, impress upon them the the need for carry forward so that the funding can be spent appropriately on the right way um, without, without losing it um, as a financial route. Okay. Um, just further to that, and please tell me that this is just idle speculation and media speculation, but there are no plans to front load £95 million onto MasterCards for everybody in Northern Ireland that will be retained to the end of you know to the end of the COVID uh, period, and then will be handed out to the people of Northern Ireland to boost Amazon's profits. Please tell me that is not a proposal that the Department of the Economy are thinking about. I am not aware of that particular proposal. So if, if it is being considered, it has reached my So how are they What are they proposing to do with the 95 million that had been allocated to them? What are they going to do with it? So the 95 million has been surrendered as part of this monitoring round. Um, it is now part, forms part of that unallocated funding, um, and we are now considering further um, bids for that fund. Right. Okay. Uh, some of the other things that the um, minister alluded to. Uh, he talked potentially about sort of a considerable ICT uplift, particularly for schools and education. And I think the implication was that that would be a, a significant buy in a short period of time. If that is the case, how can we be doing due diligence when it comes to uh, purchasing, going out to contract and the rest of it, if we've only got sort of two months left to try and achieve this? Well, certainly. Um I'm not aware of the specifics of that particular issue, Chair, but um, if I can talk about how the process works for um, a number of these things, where uh, departments will be in contact with public spending directorate on an ongoing basis about a number of projects that are uh, in the pipeline. So um, should there be something that will uh, potentially come to fruition before the end of the financial year, uh, departments will probably already have talked to supply teams on those particular issues and have um, progressed the business case to a degree um, in advance of, of any particular announcements. So it's not that um, business cases and suggestions for spend come to us completely cold, Chair. Um, that, that degree of conversation is happening and, and the, at official level, we will be aware of some of the things that departments are trying to progress. Okay, and we noticed when the minister was producing the sort of the draft budget, and we were particularly talking about health and some of the issues to do with the change program and safe, uh, safe uh, working practices. And there was a suggestion that uh, that we'd wait until we got to mid-year monitoring round to see what any surplus there happened to be. Yet now we're sitting on half a billion quid. Is there any mechanism being worked out, particularly to do with health, which could be seen to be very clearly COVID-related, that those monies could be uh, ring-fenced now so that we can actually achieve what we've promised under a new decade, new approach, particularly for health? 
one of the problems, Chair, that we'll face is the resource accounting and budgeting um, scheme in terms of trying to make sure that we can accrue the money to the right financial year. So if the, if the funding is required for safe staffing in 21-22, it will prove very difficult for us to accrue it in 2021 simply because it's not in the right financial year. Those are the budgeting rules that we work under. Um, they come down from Treasury. They're part of the kind of wider European system of accounts. Um, and our hands are somewhat tied in those areas. But undoubtedly, departments will be working on ways in which we can maximise funding and uh, and do so within the budgeting rules. Mm. Well, also, I would suggest since we've since this entire year seems to have been quite a lot of creative accounting going on. I think that is one of the areas we should be doing quite a lot of creative accounting on to make sure we meet particularly the needs of our dedicated health workers and our other workers who have put themselves on the front line to try and achieve that. Um, there was also a discussion from the Minister about one of the ways to get this money moving was to uh, increase allocation of arm's length body. But it wasn't so long ago here that we had the permanent secretary of the department was complaining about lack of transparency amongst arm's length bodies and where monies were going to and uh, the fact that the department didn't have a good oversight that once the money went to the arm's length body how it was being spent and it was being allocated. Uh, what mechanisms, if we're serious about increasing the amount of funding we're going to give to arm's length bodies to reduce this half a billion, is that, bearing in mind we don't have a fiscal council which we've been promised for a year, uh, well, how are we going to actually monitor how these monies are being spent? Bearing in mind the concerns that your own permanent secretary has already raised about arms length bodies, and certainly there, there is an issue there about how we um, place the funding. Um, one of the one of the concerns that obviously has been raised in the past is that there is a lack of transparency in where that funding is spent. So it will be for departments and for individual accounting officers to satisfy themselves that any allocations that are made in the remainder of the financial year are done so within the rules and there is sufficient uh, degree of transparency as to where that funding might be going and what it might be spent on and when it might be spent. Um, those are the, the, the key areas where accounting officers must satisfy themselves that funding is appropriately spent. Okay. Um, I think the other question we have, obviously, is that uh, now that it's difficult to say the progression of COVID and which direction it's going to, but obviously we're still going to be dealing with COVID at the end of the financial year. Indeed, um, anybody who notices the waves of pandemics, they always come in threes. Now, uh, regrettably, the second one is large, normally the largest, but there are potentials for a continuing process to do that as well. So what degree of contingency is the Department of Finance looking for? Because look, you know, a rates holiday for small and medium enterprises for the rest of the financial year, particularly through uh, 21 into 22, would be, I think would be very welcome and a very you know, effective way of dealing with those situations. And also supports when we reach a significant degree of vaccination where we can start slowly but surely opening up in our economy. But what sort of degree of contingency is the Department of Finance looking to, to achieve? We've already said you've got hundred we you, you looked at a contingency of hundred and fifty million beforehand. What sort of contingency are you looking forward as we move into 
2021 2022 chair you're, you're correct in saying that it's it's very difficult to predict the path of a pandemic and the way that a pandemic might impact the community um, and how that then translates into business support and protecting our vulnerable and supporting our key public services. Uh, one of the, the things that we have done is obviously there are there's 200 million pounds that we are seeking for carry forward from Treasury that will help to um, support business rates relief in 21-22. Um, uh, in addition to that, as part of the draft budget, approximately 126.9, I think, uh, is remains unallocated um, at this moment in time so that the executive can make decisions on that funding a little bit closer to the time when we know a little bit more about the path of the pandemic and the impact that it might have into uh, April, May and June. Uh, so. There are those two strands of approach, the 200 million that will carry forward that will help to support for rates relief. And in addition to that, the 126 that we are holding in 2022 that we can then um, allocate a little bit sooner to the time, whether that's at final budget stage or whether that's into the financial year, depending on the degree of certainty that we have in what the pandemic might do in the, the early months of 21-22. Okay, thanks, Jeff, for that. Uh, just a few short ones. Um, the Minister, when I sort of raised the question on the floor uh, about reference how the accruals that were f uh, for annual leave accrual of 8.5 million seemed to match remarkably closely with NISRA's figures, um, can we explain why the reduction in annual leave uptake seems to coincide with the reduction in sick leave during lockdown? Are we doing some HR analysis on this, or is it because people much rather work from home and sort of there is? less stress than being in the office, or has there been any more detailed analysis in that being done? I'm not aware of any detailed analysis in that area, Chair. It's probably more for HR to answer on that. Um, I, I can't speak from the experience of my team, uh, and I, I suspect that uh, less stress at home is, is, is not the case, uh, <laughs> I would agree even, with you. even in the realms of homeschooling. <laughs> I would agree with you there. Uh, okay, thanks. Um, there's a there's a loss of 12.7 million for the S, uh, Invest NI, an expected credit loss. Does that refer to a whole bunch of expected credit losses, or is that just one particular project? Um, I, I'm, I might check if Pamela knows this one, but I, I'm pretty sure it's a it's a, an amalgamated amount. It's a it's a one-off amount for for Invest NI to cover a number of loans across their portfolio. Yes, that's my understanding as well, Chair. Okay, okay, thanks. And um, a number of allocations referred to the Department for Infrastructure and the DVA and TransLink. Now, we understand about TransLink's reserves have been rated for years, so it's got into a position that does need its reserves rebuilt, so it enables it to keep going. But why are we doing it for the DVA? Was the DVA's reserves being rated as well, or what's the situation there? Uh, I, I'm sure the Department for Infrastructure Minister may not uh, accept the language of being rated, but uh, certainly the For the record, since we're unanswered, uh, is the executive to replace reserves for TransLink as it appears to be doing for the DVA? Does that sound better, Jeff? 
<laughs> yes, Chair. Um, yeah, so the, the, the DVA had its reserves depleted um, in previous years. Uh, yeah, that combined as well, obviously, with a, a significant loss of income over the last 12 months um, has allowed the, the Infrastructure Minister to bid for and receive additional funding for DVA. Yeah. And that obviously included right at the beginning the money for refurbishment of lifts and the fact that we hadn't been doing any planned maintenance on a lot of the equipment. Yes, my understanding is that has been um, that was bid for and, and funding received. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Uh, thanks for that. Philip, are you there? You bring Philip in. So uh, Assembly brought there we go. Thanks, Chair. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much for that. I mean, obviously, uh, Jeff said that the Treasury may get back with some information this week, and, and that would be welcome. I mean, I think uh, it, it would be very extremely disappointing uh, and probably irrational if there wasn't a certain latitude to carry money over given the pandemic and the late arrival of, I mean, I listened to the Minister's response to the questions uh, and, and given uh, very good detailed explanations of why we're in this situation. I mean, I, I also welcome the fact that the Executive is meeting again. I mean, this, it is, uh, I mean, ultimately, you know, a test for the Executive to ensure that that, that money isn't handed back uh, to the Treasury given that, you know, I, I don't think there would be much public uh, when we have businesses and, and employees and, and on all of the rest of that, uh, trying to get through the, the, this pandemic. So, I mean, just in terms of some of the points that, Jeff, you've already made, uh, is there likely to be a further uh, funding review uh, even later on uh, between now and April? I mean, is there timeframes uh, for you know this current phase when departments make bids, when when an, a decision will be made, and I mean it is important obviously that uh, there is transparency and scrutiny around the decisions, and, and they're not just handing out money for for the sake of it. Uh, but I do think that you know as as the chair has said, you know there are businesses out there, there are employees, there are schemes where people have been maybe a wee bit unsatisfactory about the, the amount of money and the time frame and even and getting it out. So I, I, I think that we should be looking at that. There are other, I mean, could we ask, for example, are there bids in for student support? I know that's been uh, detailed and for health workers and even within the Department for Finance. No, does the Department for Finance have, have any proposals itself? And I mean, are they, for example, maybe looking at the allocation of the business support grants within this department in terms of either expanding the remit or even the value of it? And, and then just lastly, uh, because I mean, under normal circumstances, uh, road uh, infrastructure would be getting a huge pot of money at this time of year. And I mean, certainly as we come out of this freeze, I mean, I just locally, I mean, the roads are in a terrible state. So obviously I would expect uh, a certain amount of money be going to the Department for Infrastructure to, particularly in rural roads, bring them up to a decent standard. Uh, yeah. So um, to take those one at a time. Um, yeah, you're right that there are um, the executive will meet again. Um, my understanding is that um, we, that will probably happen in a number of stages as proposals come to fruition uh, and are um, and are brought to the table. Uh, one of the things that the executive um, 
it's a fine balancing act to, to work out because uh, we could have, or the executive could have delayed monitoring for another week and therefore we could have had a few more bids on the table. But obviously we need to make sure that there is a, um, that the announcements are made as soon as we have firm proposals. So uh, I suspect that rather than wait for uh, the, a number of additional bids, the executive will do that number of stages so that as, as I said, as things come on board and, and as proposals are raised and agreed by the executive, then announcements can be made as soon as possible. One of those difficult areas where um, there's not one correct right approach to it, but um, that's my understanding. Uh, in terms of the other things that you mentioned, uh, my understanding is that there is a, a, a bid for student support in the process, uh, and that will be um, that will be brought to executive uh, in due course and decisions made on that in due course. Um, uh, yeah, looking at our own department, um, my understanding is that we, along with all the other departments, are looking at ways in which we can enhance the support that we have already provided to uh, both business uh, and citizens and, and the, the public sector where we need to do that. Um, so I understand that there are further proposals being looked at within our own department and right across other departments. Um, on the roads maintenance, uh, my understanding is that uh, DFE have sufficient funding for the, their planned roads maintenance schemes this financial year. There was no further funding requested from them. And I'm not quite sure whether that might be a capacity issue on um, on their side, not, not within the department itself, but within uh, local road contractors and things like that. I, I don't quite know. Um, that was more for the, the detail of of the, uh, the infrastructure department, but um, certainly uh, that was suggested and, and we had asked about further bids from that area and um, I don't think they were able to provide anything. Okay, yeah, and just yeah, one, sorry, one sorry, sorry for that, point. just to cut across there, just, just to get that correct. So, Jeff, that the Department of Finance asked Infra Department of Infrastructure if they wanted to bid for more and the Department of Infrastructure came back and said no. <laughs> My understanding, Chair, yes, we, we will ask all departments about um, what's what's coming up, uh, those things that we would normally expect at the end of the financial year, such as roads maintenance, yeah. um, and we will ask departments about that. Um, and if the department has sufficient funding for what it plans to do, then um, obviously the, the, no additional funding will be asked for or allocated. So um, that's uh, we can we can double check that chair, but that's my understanding. Right, because I can think of quite a few holes in South Antrim need filled, and as as can North Antrim. Yeah, and chair, I mean, uh, if I can come back in again, obviously I was reading uh, either yesterday or the day before about uh, a rural primary school having to take on. Uh, a private contractor for gritting the road. So, I mean, I think people will be looking in uh, at that department thinking maybe there should have been additional bids for for money for that. But in, in terms of uh, my criticisms of uh, uh, the Treasury, should they not be uh, forthcoming on this? I mean, has the executive and the department explored all the possibilities for uh, our own financial system being relaxed to ensure that the money, I mean, obviously we have to have, have good governance uh, and the money has to be spent properly and there has to be proper scrutiny. 
But given the, the context of the pandemic that we're in uh, and the situation we find ourselves in, have the executive and the Department of Finance explored all the possibilities for relaxing the rules that allow still maintain good governance, but allow this money to get out as quickly as possible? One of the issues that we are very constrained by is the overarching public expenditure rules as set out by Treasury. Um, we are we're constrained by resource accounting and budgeting. Um, but certainly, we have been looking at all that we can do to encourage spend in the appropriate ways with the appropriate um, controls and mechanisms and governance in place. Um, but certainly trying to push the boundaries of that without without going over the, the rules and, and breaking the rules. Obviously, um, we have been in touch with Treasury uh, on specific areas of um, funding to try and understand how what the what the best mechanism is for for spending without going over those particular rules. Um, we have uh, our department has been in touch with the audit office um, on those where Treasury has given us more information. We have been in touch with the audit office to make sure that the audit office are content with what Treasury are saying and that 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 um, should we utilize some of those areas then the audit office then will be that will be acceptable to them when it comes to finalizing accounts and that sort of thing. So we are we are doing as much as we possibly can to facilitate departments in their in their spending proposals for this financial year. Okay, thank you. Thanks very much, Jeff and Chair. Okay, thanks. Gemma? Gemma? Yeah, thanks, Chair. Um, thanks, Jeff, as well. Um, you kind of covered this in your answer with Philip, but obviously roads are a huge issue in my constituency, and if the Chair thinks there's potholes inside the Antrim, he really needs to come to Fermanagh for a while. Um, but another issue I'm dealing with is the sewerage infrastructure in Fermanagh, and the... Um, Infrastructure Minister has told me nothing can be done for another six years due to underfunding of NI Water. And I know NI Water got money at the end of 2020. Um, but I'm just wondering, has the Infrastructure Minister, and again, this could be just a question for the Infrastructure Department, but has the Minister put in any bids, um, any further bids for NI Water? Um, as far as I understand, there have been no further bids for capital funding for 2021. Uh, again, capital funding is a much more difficult type of funding to um, to, to um, implement by the time before the end of the financial year. Obviously, it requires um, significant work to, to be done on the ground, um, and funding is, tends to be released in tranches um, to cover that. So, um, we haven't had any further capital funding requirements from um, the infrastructure minister as um, as, as of today. I, I'm not aware of any. So um, the answer is no. But I, there are there are good reasons for that answer. Okay, no problem. Thank you. And then I think I know the answer to this one, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Um, if councils were to have shovel ready projects, is there a way they can apply directly to the Department of Finance? For this funding, or do they have to go through communities or DERA? Yeah, the, we don't have the the um, what they call the VERAs. The, we don't tend to provide funding directly to councils um, from the Department of Finance. The conduit would tend to be 
primarily the Department for Communities, um, but also the, uh, the Department for uh, Agriculture in, in certain specific cases. So uh, we would be tending to say that should funding need to go to councils or want to be directed to councils, it, would, it should go through those channels because they have the expertise um, and the, the, the ability to kind of direct that funding appropriately and the, the government arrangements in place and all that, 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 that would tend to hold us up should we have to try and do it ourselves. Okay, no, thanks, Jeff. And um, thanks, Jeff. That's my questions. Jim, just a quick one. Jeff, just for clarity, the 70 million RRI that the Department of Infrastructure bid for for uh, Northern Ireland Water, that's still going through? That is going through? Yes, that relates to the 2021-22 financial year, Chair, so that, that will be allocated to them as part of the budget in um, April. Right. Okay. Okay, thanks. Uh, Jim? Jim Allister. Yeah, so, Jeff, you have somewhere between three and $500 million available to spend. What do the current bids total? Um, I'm not. I'm not specifically aware of, of where we are in terms of the current bids. Um, certainly, we've had a number of, of bids that um, have come through at official level. Some aren't necessarily just um, agreed at ministerial level just yet. So, um, a, it, it's it's not it's not in the hundreds of millions at this moment in time. Um, that. So, uh, but it's certainly it's it's a significant amount. So when you say come through at official level, but not ministerially approved, do you mean not ministerially approved by the asking department? Uh, yes. Yeah, so we will we will have discussions with um, all departments at official level, um, and departments will share ideas on potential projects and uh, maybe try and get views from us on, in terms of feasibility and 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 that sort of thing. So. Um, we would be having those discussions, but it wouldn't be correct to to, to kind of mention any of those without uh, minister, appropriate ministerial cover, because by the time it gets through accounting office or a minister, it, it, those things may have changed significantly or have dropped off the table. And have you any ministerially approved uh, applications? I, 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 I think there are some in there for executive agreement, but I, I don't have the details to hand. Obviously, it's too late to do a further monitoring round. So, what is going to be the mechanism for approval of any grants, bearing in mind the need to protect ourselves against rushed and inappropriate spending? Certainly, that's that's a, a significant um, thought in our processes that funding. Uh, needs to have the appropriate governance in place. It needs to um, demonstrate VFM. Um, there needs to be appropriate mechanisms in place so that public spending is spent appropriately. Um, we will, uh, I mean, whilst we, we only have, we have finalised January monitoring, we have had a number of allocations right across this financial year. We think that January monitoring normally would be the third set of allocations in a year. We think it's probably now the 10th set of allocations this year, and um, the executive then have the ability to allocate further funding um, as we go forward. Obviously, that has an impact on um, 
on, on estimates and we will have to consider how best we incorporate the the room that would be required for additional funding further down the year um, as we come to uh, as we come to agreeing the estimate process. And can you assure us there is no shortcutting of the business case requirement? Well, certainly from our point of view in, in the Department of Finance, um, on the supply side of things, they will always be seeking business case approval where appropriate. Um, for some departments, uh, business cases will remain within the department and they don't come to the Department of Finance, but where, wherever business cases are required by the Department of Finance, that due diligence will be carried out, absolutely. And is there a consciousness that ultimately any of these rice decisions could well come to examination by the audit office? I mean, every every spending decision that is taken right across the system um, has the potential to be examined by the audit office. That is very much um, in our focus. It's very much part of a parcel of everyday work for supply teams in terms of approving business cases, making sure that the appropriate value for money is in place, making sure that um, departments are aware of the governance surrounding business cases. Um, it's, it's part and parcel of the supply team's work, um, so I, don't, I wouldn't see it any different. Just finally, we're all taxpayers. This is the money of taxpayers from across the UK. There should be no shame in returning money, if you have too much money, to taxpayers and to the Treasury, should there be? I mean, you are correct that um, every, you know, this is taxpayers' money, and it's that is the way that we in public spending directorate look at it. It's it's not our money or department's money. It's the taxpayers' money, and should we have um, schemes and? Uh, projects and programs that um, deserve that taxpayers' money through um, appropriate VFM and governance, um, uh, and should the executive agree to those, then uh, we are happy to release that funding. But um, I mean, that's that's the rules that we would apply. We we would always make sure that any taxpayers' money that is approved by DOF is approved in the right way um, at the right time. Thank you, but, uh, Jeff. Just a quick one. Um, Budget authority. You said there about departments with uh, spending limits and mightn't have to come to the Department of Finance. Have those been increased? And what's the current limit? Is it a million pounds, or has it been increased? So it very much depends, Chair, on the specific area. So um, for capital projects, for uh, some departments, it, it, it could be a million pounds. It could be five million pounds. I, I can't quite remember. There are different. Uh, spending limits or, or delegated limits, as we would call them, for different departments, depending on previous history, um, how departments have performed in the past, um, the level of, uh, of overall budget for the department, that sort of thing. On resource side of things, there tends to be um, more delegation for resource programs and projects, um, uh, except potentially where there are um, novel or contentious, uh, they would come to the Department of Finance. So uh, the, the, the delegated limits haven't been changed in the last, I'm going to say at least 12 months, Chair. I'm not quite sure. It's not my side of things, but certainly there hasn't been any significant changes in them um, that I'm aware of in the last uh, year or, or at least a year. Yeah. 
I'd imagine everything from the Department of Economy now must be coming to you because everything they seem to be doing is novel and contentious combined. Certainly, um, I think we would probably uh, have seen a number of new things that wouldn't have even crossed our radar 12 months ago, Chair. That's one way of putting it. Okay, Paul. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Jeff, for your time and, and the extensive questions and answers you've given. Uh, you do certainly put in a shift when you come here, so thank you for your time. Uh, I suppose my question is around, well, what I did ask the Minister in a, in a private capacity earlier on in the week was, and I wasn't expecting an answer then, and maybe you won't be able to answer me this at this point in time either, is whilst we're not comparing apples and oranges with regards to Wales and Scotland, do we know the pressures that those jurisdictions are under, those regions are under, with regards to underspend? And is it comparable then with Northern Ireland? It's a good question. Um, it's one of the things that we would discuss uh, at official level with uh, other areas. Um, they certainly are um, seeking similar levels of carry forward for um, for their administrations as we are. Um, obviously, that's evidenced by the joint finance minister um, uh, letter to the Chief Secretary of the Treasury. Um, in, in addition to that, we might actually know more this afternoon because uh, our minister is speaking to his uh, Scottish and Welsh counterparts this afternoon on this particular issue. Okay, so uh, with regards to uh Bidding. You, you, you have told us there that you have actively, you, as a department, you have actively went out and, and approached or reached out to other ministers to see about how we can spend the underspend in what will become an agile monitoring round, I suspect, of some dis description or, or guise. That strikes me as a completely different approach from what the minister has taken in year where the Minister has told the Assembly time after time that he doesn't create bids, he waits for other Ministers to bid and then he gives out the money. Right. So now he's becoming proactive. Why could the Minister, the Finance Minister, have been proactive in any of the other previous monitoring rounds? Perhaps it's my loose use of language um, on this one. So we would, in each monitoring round, we will always ask departments for um, uh, what pressures they are facing. We will always go out and proactively do that. We will always, uh, as supply teams within public spending directorate, they will always be in touch with their departments on a weekly or potentially more often, um, they will be in touch with their departments on what the departments are doing, what the, the financial outlook looks like for each uh, department. And um, then ultimately, the, when we request details of financial pressures, then they will come to, to us through either a monitoring round or, as you say, a more agile monitoring round. Um, and uh, we will then look at those. But certainly, um, it's our job to know what's going on out there, and we want to, to know what the pressures are for all departments in every financial exercise. Um, and I, I suspect I would come under significant criticism from the committee should I not be asking those particular questions. Yeah, it just strikes me as a complete sea change of approach that the Minister has taken every time he has come to the Assembly. And 
I, I, I hear what you're saying, and, and it's a novel defence that you've made there with regards to your language as opposed to the minister. So I, I, I take that, Jeff, and I commend you for it. Can I ask then, how, how whenever you uh, allocate money to a department like infrastructure with a rolling, live, breathing capitalist, where, where does the limit draw the line whereby you allocate money to DEFI, and it's usually through a monitoring round, so it's usually done and dusted by now. So imagine you then give DEFI money a day before the new tax year for work that they had scheduled in for beginning May. Does that work? I guess we'd have to look at the specifics of it, but on the information that you have provided, um, I certainly wouldn't be recommending providing them funding on the 31st of March for anything that is um, happening in May. That, that would, to me, would break the rules. Would it break the rules if the work was commenced in this tax year, but maybe money hadn't been allocated to supplies or contractor? Again, it probably depends on the individual um, project and the specifics of it, but certainly uh, there would be a, a much, much stronger argument to provide funding for it had it commenced or had, will it commence in this financial year. Certainly there would be a... Um, obviously, it would ultimately come down to what audit would say, but um, I imagine there would be a, a strong argument to say we are allocating this money now because this project is commencing. It's... it's Boots on the ground on the 31st of March. And of course, that would be capital, not resource, isn't that correct? If it was a rolling programme of capital uh, list like DFI or even for schools or hospitals for that matter? Yeah, it depends on the individual project, but um, if it is uh, an improvement to the, 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 the asset, and it will be capital uh, in nature. So the likes of roads maintenance isn't capital in nature because you're just kind of maintaining it at a level that it is. But if it is actually a new build or a new road or a significant upgrade, then absolutely it's going to be capital in nature. So, so you could, it's not far-fetched then to say that the infrastructure minister could then... Because it is a, it is, this is a natural thing usually for Jan, January morning rounds whereby you, we, we, for want of a better word, dump money towards those that department who has been traditionally underfunded usually in the upfront budget and then in the earlier monitoring rounds uh, we would usually then give them the executive would give them the money then to furnish out a, a good bit of their rolling uh, capital program or, or their resource program with regards to improvements to roads uh, the only thing that would limit the fi maybe is capacity of contractors to get people on the ground but is that something that you're actively... I'm not saying it's the best, best use of money, but at least it will get it on the ground with regards to brand-new surfaces. Is that something that you're actively considering with regards to the resource? Yes, sir. So this roads maintenance issue was something I think that we have been in discussion with DFI on as part of the January monitoring. Um, it is something that as you're, you rightly state, is probably restricted by the, the contractor at the end of it, as opposed to anything that the department itself does. And potentially the department 
department might have had um, funding, its roads maintenance kind of resource budget planned out sufficiently um, or it not to require additional funding in January. So um, it's something that we can go away and look at uh, because absolutely it's something that um, if it's if it's possible, if it's viable, if the infrastructure minister um, uh, wants to, to look at that particular issue and can find capacity for it, um, it's certainly something that we can consider uh, as part of a, a further allocation. So given that logic then, where where does the permanent disabled pension, what budget does that come out of? Capital mm. or resource? Or what, where will it come out of? Um, my understanding that it's a resource budget. So if you get to a certain period of time this tax year and you know you're going to hand money back to the Treasury, it will then effectively be Treasury money. And I, notwithstanding the principal political arguments as to who should pay the permanent disablement pension, if we're about to hand £346 million back to the Treasury yep. and ask the political argument that they fund the permanent disablement pension, what is stopping this minister and this department from holding that money to pay permanent disabled victims their pension? My understanding, and, and I'm only on the periphery of this, but my understanding is that the, the scheme itself is not in a position to pay out this financial year. Um, there have been administrative costs provided to that scheme as part of the draft budget um, to enable it to to be in a position to pay out, I think, by May. Um, but certainly at, at the end of March, where the kind of the financial rules apply, I'm not sure they would be in a position to pay out anything at that stage. So are you saying that you can't hold in any sort of way money, knowing that there will be a cost for a duration of lifetimes? that you can't have that money sitting in trust or storage or some sort of vehicle or company in order to administer those payments over a period of time? I, I, again, um, it would probably be for those that would be administering the, the scheme to confirm this, but my understanding would be that until we get to the point where we can, what they call, accrue the money um, so that there, we can pin down exactly what it is, when it is, how the scheme works, who gets paid, um, and on what stages that then we can't, as you say, hold that money in trust. Um, otherwise, that would be something certainly that we would consider. Okay, Chair. Okay, thanks, Paul. Thanks very much. Thank you, Chair. Melissa, Melissa, you got us. Good points. Hello. Yep. Can you hear us? Yeah. Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, I'd just thank you for your statement as well too. Um, and I know that I'm covering ground probably that has already been touched on, but uh, at the same time it's very pertinent, I do think. Um, not just for we'll say it's an MLA, but uh, I get the comment from the general public, you know, that whenever they hear about uh, monies going back or the likes of it and the it's going back to the taxpayer, um, uh, they're still sort of shocked to think that um, that we don't have that state of readiness even within departments uh, that in the event of money being allocated, we'll say, at a late date, uh, that they're not 
ready uh, to um, uh, make use of that money uh, for what in many cases uh, are very, very obvious uh, gaps that we have within our whole sort of infrastructure, we'll say at the present time, and I'm not just talking, whenever I'm using the word infrastructure, I'm talking about the general organisation of our society in every respect, whether it's education, health, uh, or the roads. But take, like, in particular, you know, like the, this whole thing about um, uh, the roads um, and that where projects haven't been coming forward, and yet not. I know that uh, at the present time, you actually have community groups throughout the country that are resorting to uh, carrying out what previously was the duty of the likes of road service. Uh, and I'm thinking in particular in terms of Gritton, uh, that only over this last couple of weeks, all of a sudden it became a real sort of crisis situation that uh, not only was Gritton up and put out on many of the roads, but in particular, we'll say, in the more urbanised areas and so on, Grit boxes and that weren't being supplied. And yet, and all, um, whenever we were in contact with the road service, we were just sort of invariably getting that same excuse. There's cutbacks, we don't have the money, uh, we can't carry out sort of uh, our duties as we would like to, or as what we have done so in the past. And then you hear then that there hasn't even been a submission made, we'll say, to the likes of finance and so on for... Uh, uh, work such as that. And I'd like to congratulate you as well to you, Jeff, in the way that you actually defended uh, the positivity within finance themselves and that they do that they did react uh, positively to uh, departments, not only in the allocation, we'll say, of funding, but in requesting them to come forward with the ideas. And let's face it, you know what I mean? That just isn't entirely the responsibility of the Minister of Finance or the Finance Department, but each and every other minister too should be taking full responsibility for what it is uh, that they are responsible for. Uh, the other comment that uh, was made to and I really welcome it, that uh, again, that there are been taken into consideration, i.e. provision for students and so on. Because uh, within that whole educational system, I'd up to, and in particular the forward higher education, they have suffered greatly as a result of this whole pandemic in every respect. Um, and I'm glad to see that uh, initiatives are being brought forward there, and hopefully that, um, that, that it will help to sort of soften uh, the blow or ease the difficulty they have now in their participation in further and higher education. Um, and I'm sure there was, uh, the, the, yeah, uh, one other point just that I do make, and I'm not that sure just where, in fact, responsibility for this actually lies, but it is still the case that uh, there are uh, individuals, uh, maybe who are maybe the sole director of a company or the likes of it, uh, that are falling through the net and are not receiving the type of support that one would expect. Uh, and I know because I've actually dealt directly with some of them myself and so on, so I'd like to think that um, someone has been a wee bit maybe uh, more imaginative and, and been able to um, at least be uh, in contact with and taken on board, i.e. those people that are falling through that in terms of uh, um, uh, support uh, during this time, especially in view of the fact that quite clearly it seems to be the case that there is an abundance of funds and that there uh, to um, to be imaginative and to come forward with projects that would uh, meet uh, the, the criteria in terms of good governance and everything else. So, as I say, these are all mainly just statements rather than questions as such. Mm -hmm. 
Um, maybe just chair to pick up on a couple of those things. Absolutely, um, departments tend to have a number of projects that are in states of readiness. Um, I suspect that at the end of a number of those departments and uh, will we'll get funding in a normal year. Uh, we've just experienced um, an unprecedented year and I, I struggle to use the word because it's kind of lost some of its meaning over the last 12 months, but certainly in my 18 years of working in public finance, I haven't seen a year like this that we have had such significant amounts of additional funding, such unparalleled um, work by departments to get uh, new initiatives and um, things that we wouldn't have considered 12 months ago up off the ground running, try and get accurate cost assessments for them, try and get um, accurate usage statistics that would help us to inform these projects and programs, things that potentially in a normal course of events you would do over 12, 24, 36 months, we're doing now in three, four, five months. Um, so. Um, the, the state of readiness has, has changed somewhat since this time last year, where we would have had a number of departments ready with kind of run-of-the-mill changes that, um, that they could have taken on board at the last minute to help us spend whatever funding that we would have had. Um, in terms of the other thing you were talking about, in terms of falling through the net, we have, and the Minister has um, called yet again for all departments to look at areas where people are not getting appropriate support where they have fallen through the network for one circumstance or another they haven't been able to pick up the support that has been provided to others um, the minister has been encouraging those around the kind of the business and the economy sectors to look at these things and to try and find where those gaps are and fill them and um, certainly that's what we've been encouraging departments to do okay okay, okay. Pat. thank you I suppose Pat. Hello. Yep, we can hear you, Pat. Yeah, thanks very much, Jan. Thanks very much, uh, Jeff. There's no doubt that I am very concerned uh, with with uh, the Department of Finance, and we're sitting, and we've already heard with 500. Uh, 509 million. But my question is, I, I've, I've listened to a lot of talk there, and I hope you'll agree with me on the bids which was made to the Department of Infrastructure. It sounds like this is an infrastructure meeting rather than a finance meeting, and there's 509 million pounds that are gone spent. We should be asking questions of our finance minister where that is. But I noticed from from the structural maintenance budget for the Department of Finance, of, of the Department of Infrastructure, there was 75 million capital as a result of that bid and adjustments and they were able to increase that on a bid up to by 11.7 so there was 83 point million so the extra money was given there and if i look at all the other departments they were the only department to return 0.18 percent so they've managed to keep things in track and deliver throughout the year within their budget other departments are returning millions, and we're sitting on millions. Or can you give me the very substantial sums that are left unspent in the department to undertake another monitoring round before the end of the financial year? And I'd love this in really plain English. And will the minister make a further statement on the anticipated or the other allocations? 
So, yeah, absolutely. Um, we can give an undertaking that the Minister will present to his executive colleagues um, further bids for consideration, and should those be agreed by the executive, they will be announced as part of what we would call that kind of agile um, monitoring round. Um, I mean, you had mentioned there we had £500 million at the start of this um, monitoring round. We've, we're sort of sitting at around 350. Um, a number of factors there that we we didn't anticipate um, the additional money from Treasury. We, we didn't anticipate, um, and we probably couldn't have anticipated that uh, when we when we concluded October monitoring, um, there was uh, the return of the high street scheme at about £100 million that we, we didn't anticipate. There was um, a further reduction from health of £90 million that, that we didn't anticipate. There, there are a number of good and valid reasons why that, that funding has been returned. It's just it happens that those significant amounts of money then make um, us have that that additional money that we now have to get get moving. Um, you're absolutely correct that Department for Infrastructure has um, they've worked their socks off in terms of trying to get funding sorted. Um, look at the support that we have provided to TransLink for uh, lost income, for resilience, that kind of um, area for DVA. We've had um, a number of the minister has been working on um, making sure that, as you say, additional capital has been provided where necessary. Um, so uh, there, there are a number of good things coming out from all departments, uh, and all departments are, are doing their best. And if I have given the impression that they aren't, um, I apologise, because that's not, not the case at all. But, Jeff, I do notice that other departments, just looking through the figures, are returning millions of pounds. And I noticed that that department, the Department of Infrastructure, it, it, it returned 0.18%. So yes. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things there is that the Department for Infrastructure um, are, are providing that funding to established um Groups established kind of areas like the likes of TransLink and the likes of DVA, um, other departments, the Department for Health, for instance, looking at how it, how it deals with that pandemic and that, that pandemic response. I can understand why they may have provided um, initial estimates that weren't that weren't um, as accurate as they would have liked to, to be. The likes of the Department for Economy, where there are a number of novel schemes that are that are coming out and. It is hard to understand the uptake of a scheme like that. It's hard to understand what the cost estimates might be um, for, you know, for new and, and emerging schemes. So you're right. There are a lot of departments out there that are handing back additional money. I think it's just a context of um, pandemic planning at this moment in time. But even even with that pandemic planning, Jeff, do you not agree that this is? I know it's. It should have actually speeded this up an awful lot quicker. Do you not think that it's going to be nearly impossible now as we come and we're moving near this financial year and there's no guarantee that that this money will be allowed to roll over, any of it? And just one more point at the end of this one, Jeff, please. Sure. And, um, yeah, there, there, is, there is no guarantee at this moment in time. Obviously, we're hoping for some sort of understanding from Treasury and some sort of formal um, agreement from them in the, in the next day or two to allow us to plan appropriately for the remainder of the financial year. We are 
doing our best to um, make sure that funding is uh, allocated as appropriate um, in the appropriate ways and we are and the minister is very clear that he wants his ministerial colleagues to help him out um, in bringing forward programs and projects that allow the appropriate amount of COVID support for both businesses and uh, the vulnerable. I hear what you're saying, but I also have to say uh, to the Minister that there should have been more schemes sitting there and ready to go from the start year. We should have been planning for this in this year of the pandemic, that this would not have all been taken up and it will come in. And it is sort of congesting uh, end here to the last two or three months in order to get the spend. Yeah, and, and one of the issues with that is that um, we could not have... 12 months ago, we could not have predicted that Treasury would provide over three billion pounds of additional money in the financial year. Um, we lived essentially um, on the drip feed of Barna consequences up until July, where we got the UK guarantee, and that was increased a number of times. Had we known what that number would have looked like at the start of the financial year, then I think we would have planned in a different way, uh, and we would have planned um, to just just to understand how to um, appropriately use that that three billion pounds across the, the system where um, we haven't been able to do that in a uh, looking at the kind of the big picture until now where we've finally got the, the last 200 million pounds in December and potentially Treasury could provide additional money before the end of the financial year depending on what that guarantee looks like so um, if they did, we would be expecting them to allow us to carry forward anything that they provided between now and the end of the financial year. Thank you, Charlotte. Just this last one, Will. I mean, can you advise on the Pacific resourcing capital amounts proposed by 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 the Department, the Treasury, for this carryover? Because it seems to be moving every week I go in. And last, last week, with all of the figures, and I'm back in again today, and there seems to be another set of figures coming at us. And it's the amount of spend. And I heard what some of the other MLS said there about it is Treasury money. But I, we all know the hardships that's out there. And I'm coming from a business point of view. Businesses are closing. They will not open. And it's important that we get every bit of aid we can out there in order to get them to survive. Certainly, I mean, the, the, the amounts coming out of January monitoring um, combined COVID and non-COVID. So we're looking at what uh, funding is available for right across the system between now and the end of uh, March. It's £346.4 million of resource, £28.3 million of capital and £55.7 million of financial transactions capital. That are the numbers that are um, that are set in stone at the end of the January monitoring position and that's the numbers that we will be working with going forward. Well, just, uh, I spoke with the Chair yesterday and I'm hoping that some of that capital may well there may well be an, a, like an oven ready going, something that we can pull there in order to try and use some of that money up to the to the betterment of Northern Ireland and where we are on some capital project. Thank you, Sharp. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Matthew? Thank you very much. Apologies for arriving late um, to yourself, Chair, and to um, Jeff. So apologies if I missed uh, any um, uh, pertinent bits of the presentation. Um, just Jeff, you mentioned the global figure, so it's about still, as of the end of the modelling round, it's about 430 unallocated, which is 
largely resourced Dell, but also includes capital and FTC. Um, a few questions asked. Um, as of last week, the position was, the, the view was that there would be at least 85 million allowed to be carried over under the budget exchange scheme. So you could minus off 85 from that 346 because that will be um, also the expectation, I think, from yourself and Joanne was that there would be 200 addition, the 200 that was, I think, allocated in November, late November, early December, would also be allowed to be carried over. So if that's right, is that is it more like 146? No, not 146, sorry, more like uh, just over 100? No, not, not quite. Um, so you're correct that um, we would be allowed in under the budget exchange scheme to carry forward amounts. So the profit, it's about 0.6% of our overall resource tail, which creates about 85, 88 million for, for uh, this financial year. So you could, in theory, you could take that off. Um, mm -hmm. That would be assuming that departments would fully spend um, on their already allocated budgets. Uh, the £200 million um, carry forward isn't part of this process, so um, that, that isn't uh, in those figures, um, so it's additional to those figures. So the £200 million meaning you haven't included that because you're certain that you're going to be allowed to carry it over. So if the Treasury turned around and said you can't carry it over, it would be for 540 not, not saying it's going to happen, but... Yes, um, we would be fairly confident that Treasury will be um, will look up look on this favourably, but you're right, we don't know that until we get formal confirmation. So you're, on Resource Dale, you're asking, in addition to the 200 million, which you think will probably be allowed to be carried over, the 85, which is sort of part of the you know normal practice under the budget exchange scheme, you're effectively asking for as much of the 346 and as well as the 28.3 capital and 55 FTC. Yeah. We, yes, we would be asking for um, proposals to spend all of that. Just in the past, yeah, look a remarkable young man for someone who's worked at um, and devolved spending for so long, but is this, I know we're in a completely unique year, but in terms of in, in proportionate terms, uh, what have there been previous years where obviously we have a, a chronic problem with underspends generally? But is this the worst you've seen, or the most substantial you've seen in proportionate terms? Um, it, it's not the most substantial I've seen, um, but certainly, well, um, we've had significant underspend in previous years where we've had previously had the ability to carry it forward. So. Um, since the budget exchange scheme has come in and capped the ability for us to carry forward unspent funding, this is unprecedented. This is okay. This is the largest amount since the budget exchange scheme has come in. Is there is there any argument saying to the treasury? Well, the budget exchange scheme was a response to, in part, as I understand it, tell me if this is wrong, a, a, a belief of the treasury that there was a perverse consequence, a perverse incentive to having much more loose rules around carry forward. Is part of your argument to them? Well, this is a unique year. The, the, the perverse incentive doesn't exist because we have, because this is a unique year because money's been allocated that we haven't had the opportunity to spend properly. Yes, so the, I mean, very much the argument is that um, we will have 
uh, very real need on the ground in terms of COVID support. Um, we could potentially have a project that may be hitting the ground early April uh, and for the sake of a few days, this seems to be a perverse, a, a perverse way of applying um, those particular rules and, and they have the ability for us to, um, to they have the ability to waive those rules for the devolved administrations in some form or other. So that's the argument that the Minister and his counterparts have put across to Treasury and we are awaiting their outcome. The biggest single item of the biggest single item of underspend is the basically the high street voucher scheme, I think. I'm right in saying. Yes, of departmental specific underspend, that's right. It's the 95. Um, the, the, the other area, which is fairly is very significant, is the fact that because we got 200 million pounds extra that we may now carry forward, we had been holding 150 million for carry forward for rates that, that then came into play. So that 150 million, the 90 million from right, the high right. street voucher scheme, and the 90 million from um, the Department of Health from their uh, reassessment of pandemic pressures. Um, are the kind of the three big ticket items in that overall scale, that, that overall kind of pot? Okay. Um, is there um, when that scheme was announced? I think it was only in November that that scheme was actually announced. Uh, the money was allocated in November, I believe, or October. But... Yeah, I'm not quite sure whether it was in November. For October, it's uh, sometimes these these kind of um, allocations all kind of merge into one for me. So um, you're, you're right; it, it was about that time. But obviously, and Paul Free asked a little bit of this. But obviously, part of the challenge here is about what exactly is represented by spending and when. Um, was there any? What, why was that money allocated if there was still high degree of uncertainty about whether shops would be open? Presumably, it didn't need to be. The money didn't need to be spent us and people didn't need to physically spend the vouchers by the end of the financial year or did they or was it the people did they, talk me through why that was allowed as it were whether well, there's a clearly a degree of uncertainty about when it would be deliverable yeah and and i think that um it's not quite my side of things in terms of that uh, the specifics of the the dfe scheme but Certainly, my understanding is that uh, there were a number of um, potential ways that they were exploring to to do this, um, and as they kind of worked through those particular issues and understood the, the implications and were, were ruling out what they could and couldn't do, then um, that they, they've come to the realization that there isn't a, a good way to spend the, the the funding appropriately with the right governance in place before the end of the financial year. Um, you know, I think you're right that it's not necessarily about when people spend vouchers. It is more about how, when we commit to providing the people with vouchers, and, and there is particular difficulties around that. So it's not. It wasn't actually the fact that shops remain closed. It was the fact that. In a sense, that what you're telling me is it's irrelevant that we've had a longer lockdown than any of us anticipated because it, it wasn't really about whether people could get out to the shop and buy stuff. It was about this scheme actually being delivered and the, the money being in the account of whoever was providing it. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm not an expert on it, so I may have taken the wrong end of it, but certainly my understanding is that it, it's more around understanding when the funding accrues um, to the financial year, and it's not necessarily that that happens whenever 
someone spends the voucher and puts it in, in, a, in a shop's till. Right. Just one final couple of points, if I may, Chair, just on, in terms of being completely sort of ambitious and novel about how you, um, uh, how you get this money, as it were, out the door, or at least committed in the next few months, is there any thought being given to um, a setting up some kind of special purpose vehicle or some kind of mechanism which could where money, to which money could be allocated in expectation of it being um, uh, dispersed to, for example, businesses that continue? We, we will sadly probably have, for example, hospitality businesses closed further into, or at least restricted further into 2021 than certainly I would like. We'd quite like to go to a hospitality business now. I think we all need it, but. Um, like, what are the? How can you kind of bend the rules, interpret the rules to the maximum in order to get money allocated that can be spent in financial year twenty one, twenty two? Is that, you know, for example, is that, I mean, FTC money certainly is there. I know that's a, a financial transaction, but are there are there ways you can um, allocate this money for spending in? the next financial year that you're thinking about? I mean, we are, we are um, I sort of, I mentioned a wee bit earlier that we, we are trying our best to um, understand and interpret the financial rules um, to allow us to spend this funding within the financial year. Now, we're not going to do that to the, to the detriment of the, the overall public expenditure rules or to uh, governance procedures. That's just not... That's just not, um, and that's not possible. We'll not do that. But we are looking at how we best push the envelope in terms of that. So we're talking to Treasury about um, the rules that are in place in England and how those are interpreted. We're talking to the Audit Office about how, um, how what sort of view they might take on issues that would arise if we spent funding in a certain way. We are doing our best to ensure that that funding is. Um, allocated appropriately. It's allocated um, to areas where we can support public sector, we can support the vulnerable, we can support business uh, this financial year um, and spend it in this financial year. And we're, we're doing everything we can possibly think of to make sure that those those boundaries are are um, challenged but but not exceeded. I suppose one final question: What date did the and we may have been told this at a previous hearing, and I've forgotten about it, so apologies. What date did the finance minister write out to his ministerial colleagues to um, encourage them to come up with novel schemes? I, I know he wrote in the last week or two, but prior to that, in the autumn? So um, I don't have the information specifically to hand, but the, the, the minister has on a number of occasions through, um, for instance, the, at the end of September monitoring as part of the executive paper, he had encouraged his executive colleagues to look for ways in which funding could be spent um, and uh, had encouraged them to, to support businesses and areas where gaps had still to be covered and still um, where support still hadn't found its, its way to certain sectors. So he, he had continually um, made sure that uh, he was expressing that opinion and, and encouraging his executive colleagues to, to look for ways in which that funding could be spent. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff.
Okay, thanks. And sir, Jeff, just before I go, and sir, just a few comments from the chair. It's not questions, but look, um, not having a fiscal council in place, which would have a method of oversight, if we were thinking along the lines of special service vehicles and. Speaking as somebody who was part of the economy committee just before we collapsed through what can only be described as some novel accounting procedures that had gone on beforehand, I'm quite nervous about language about things like pushing the envelope. And we do appreciate we need this money spent, but this place does not have a good reputation by any stretch of the imagination for novel financing and accountability and responsibility. We have to be extraordinarily cautious. And I feel the same when we hear about discussions about novel finances. Uh, without a fiscal council in place, the only safeguard that we have are the committee structure here is in this assembly. And unless we have sufficient information and knowledge of what's going on in some of these procedures, I personally, and I'm not speaking for the rest of the committee, but I have to state I'm quite nervous about languages, particularly around novel finances and the rest of it. You know, we do need to get this money spent, but we need to be very cautious. And I also am drawn back again to the words of the Permanent Secretary when we were discussing arm's length bodies not so long ago, when she was quite concerned about the oversight of funding within arm's length bodies and where they were going to, to hear that as part of the solution to this problem might be giving excess extra resources to the arm's length bodies. But Jeff, I know it's been quite a long session and the rest of it, but as usual, thank you very much indeed, and thank you very much indeed for your candour, and you'll probably be going back and thinking, thank goodness that's all over. But I just wanted to say thank you very much indeed. And Pamela, sorry, we didn't get much chance to talk to you as well, but no doubt you were taking all excellent notes and uh, we were reporting back as, as we go through. But again, Jeff and Pamela, thanks very much indeed, and please keep safe. Thank you very much indeed. No problem. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, okay, Chair. thanks. Okay, Tim. Uh, just, uh, I'd just like to advise that uh, at the meeting on the 17th of February, the committee will receive oral briefings from RAISE on its analysis of the forecast and outrun data provided for the committee. This will help inform the members' consideration for, of the departmental oral evidence at the same meeting on the spring supplementary estimates, which reconcile all movements arising from monitoring rounds in this financial year. Uh, they're going to have to do quite a lot of work if they're going to be able to rec reconcile all the movements arising from monitoring rounds, because I think uh, I don't think we have had uh, full visibility by any stretch of the imagination and reconciling of the movements that have gone through as well. If we're content, we'll move on to the next item of the agenda. Uh, it's uh, item six: oral evidence from the Department of Finance Public Procurement Common Framework. I think we've got Des and Michael. Are you up, Des? I think so. Oh, chair. Hey, empty chair. I have loved to do oh, that so nice often. <laughs> but you wish that was you. You mean uh, Des? If you're uh, Des, if you're happy to continue, and uh, uh, yeah, that's much better for Michael looking that way. Apologies. <laughs> <laughs> no trouble at all. Uh, just uh, committee. Uh, the uh, clerk's uh, uh, procurement framework notes on page forty-four. Departmental briefing is in tabled items on page 49, page 70, page 87 and page 99. Des, could you uh, crack on and make your opening statement, please? Thanks very much indeed. Sure. If it's OK with, with you and members, I was going to ask Michael just to give you the background to the uh, common framework, because Michael has been involved 
very closely with uh, colleagues right across uh, cabinet office and through the other administrations. If that's okay, Michael would be the resident expert on this. If that's okay. Yes, please. Thanks, Des. Um, just give me a bit of an overview. Uh, public procurement was identified as a policy area that would benefit from a, a framework, as were many other areas, um, as we left the um, European Union. Um, previously, the devolved administrations have all had memorandums of understanding and concordance with Cabinet Office to coordinate the um, public procurement and engagement with the European Commission. Um, Cabinet Office has been leading on this work. It was um, one of many work streams and part of the operational um, readiness preparations for EV exit, which included a range of other um, procurement functions that needed to be um, agreed and drawn up. Um, the framework is is very, very um, high level. It's uh, a vehicle where the administrations will come together to discuss and make each other aware of particularly policy development as opposed to um, legal um, development. Um, and that's there really to ensure that we have a consistent application of public procurement policy uh, um, within the, the UK internally so that suppliers can easily access and bid for opportunities in all the various regions. And um, particularly the framework will allow for a consultation exchange of information. And um, you'll see some wording in the framework that we still um, have um, respect for the, each of the devolved administrations to develop their own policies that they will need to do to use public procurement and um, to further um, wider objectives they'll have in each other areas. But we will do that on a no surprises basis and we will always try to make sure that we do not um, inadvertently put a policy in place that would prevent suppliers from each of the, the areas um, bidding for work, um, which is really important. And um, at a minimum, we will agree to honour any international um, obligation that is resulting from any future trade agreements or free treatments such as GPA that is there at the minute. And um, there is a resolution dispute resolution process in the back, which, as I understand, is standard in all common frameworks provided by the Constitution Group and Cabinet Office. We are currently just coming to the end of phase three. Uh, awaiting for JMCEN agreement to that outline before going into phase four, which will require um, deeper consultation with stakeholders. I hope that's sufficient detail, but happy to take any questions. Um, I think it's just been a, something's crashed, I think. Yeah, sorry, we're having a little technical difficulty here, just bear with us. I think he's uh, finished uh, on this desk uh, or something to add. So, there's, uh, has anybody got some questions? I'm trying to bring up my system, which is um, crashed at the moment, so I'm having difficulty bringing up my papers. But, sort of, go ahead, please, Jim. Yeah, could I just ask, um, as concise as you can, what has been the impact of the EU protocol on where we go? Sorry, can you hear us okay? Mr. Alistair has asked the question. If Sorry. Sorry, Mr. Alistair. I'm not sure whatever. There's still a bit of a breakup in the system. The, the issue in terms of um, the common framework is, you know, it's clearly stated that there is no intersection between the common framework and the protocol. Um, so 
in terms of the the framework really is around establishing common uh, public procurement policy, uh, sharing information, you know, various involved administrations discussing common uh, issues and matters of concern. So it doesn't really run through to that impact on. You can assure us that there is no protocol impact on procurement. Well, that's that's a different issue, I suppose, in terms of there was likely, I suppose, to be um, issues that may arise around supply chains, but those matters would be dealt with in terms of contracts that are in place and impact on performance, rather than anything that's related to the uh, common framework on public procurement. Um, so if there were any EU rules touching upon the do's and don'ts of procurement, that wouldn't impact on the work you're doing? Well, it, it, in terms of what we're doing at the moment, in terms of the, the fact that we've now moved towards Board of Trade Agreement membership, yeah. the regulations require European member states to treat uh, World Trade members uh, the same as they would uh, suppliers in the member states uh, for work that's above threshold. So there is some read across in terms of the public procurement regulations and the EU directives. Um, whether that diverges or not as we go forward, I couldn't comment at the moment. But what we have in place now is public procurement regulations amended to take account of the withdrawal. Uh, and that places, as I say, in the status and uh, in, in the regulations of being a World Trade Organization member and therefore entitled to participate in public procurement competitions across the EU uh, region uh, and treated in the same standard as, as other member states' suppliers would be. But, uh, I suppose the point I was really trying to explore is I understand the, the WTO membership gives you the the right to trade uh, in that regard. But what I was interested in, if the EU were to bring in further uh, provisions for, which governed how procurement had to be organised and arranged, would that impact upon us? Again, the, the issue would be that the World Trade Organization member would have to decide that they wish to participate in the UU regulated competition okay. on the terms that had been agreed by the EU and that the EU would treat World Trade member organizations or suppliers in the same way they would treat any other member state. Um, so that, that's the point, I suppose, um, okay, going forward. You. Um, just pursuant to uh, Jim Allister's question, there is an issue here with sort of public procurement and the rest of it. And when we're doing procurement, many of our companies wouldn't describe themselves as Northern Ireland only or GB only. They would say themselves as UK companies. But if they're bidding, and let's say they are based in Wolverhampton for state of argument, and are given some form of support from sort of uh, GB government. How does that play with, particularly with sort of competition rules and the uh, level playing field? Because 
bearing in mind the significant amounts of public procurement and the amount of money that would have to go out to contract, do Northern Ireland, in Northern Ireland, do we have to apply the EU ACWI, i.e., we have to go through the EU uh, Common Procurement Document and publish it in the EU Gazette, or do we stay purely within the UK system? Right. Um, I suppose I need to just consider that. Michael might have a view on that, and I'll. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, at the minute, the, um, the the amendments that have been made to the procurement rules still only require us to publish on the new fine tender service, which has been introduced as a replacement for the OGU system that was previously um, that are for as part of European requirements. The only way we would continue to advertise in OGU is if there was um, European funding money um, still being applied within the procurements, and um, we would still have to follow some of the, the European rules. But there, um, under GPA, the only requirement that we have is to have a single portal for the UK so that any supplier coming from another um, country, which is a member of the WTO, can access um, procurement opportunities in a single portal. Okay. So your understanding is that, is that they, there's no way that uh, a company in Northern Ireland or a, 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 a contract in Northern Ireland that's done by a UK company uh, a company which is based on UK procurement rules is going to be chased by, let's say, a company in the Irish Republic that says I wasn't able to bid for that contract under the sort of under uh, the the protocol and the provisions of the TCA. The well, the GPA will require, similar to the European rules, that anything that's above the specified thresholds, which is approximately one hundred twenty thousand pounds for goods and services and four and a half million for construction. We will have to follow the principles of uh, transparency, fairness and non-discrimination as they are currently sitting within what would have been the European rules. Um, it's when it falls below that threshold, um, it's not clear um, that anybody has to um, comply with uh, laws, basically. Um, previously, that was controlled by the Treaty of the Function of the European Union, and it was more of a cross-border trade issue. Um, I think some clarity is needed of whether that would impact on the protocol at all. Mm. Which, of course, would be a matter for the Specialist Committee and the Joint Committee Working Groups if they were ever set up. Possibly, yes. I think it's more of a constitutional issue and, and trade, um, trade um, not being a devolved matter. Um, it's very difficult for us to um, have anything to say about that? And just if this new framework is adopted, will we need new legislative powers here in Northern Ireland as part of the Assembly to deal with this? No, it's non-legislative. So even though we are dealing with procurement issues, the Department of Finance has set itself up as a procurement board. We're dealing with substantial amounts of government monies for procurement. Uh, it's not uh, you do not believe that there will need any more legislative powers than we have at the moment. Well, I think just to try back and maybe come in, I think that this is always the issue that there are when we were part of the EU, there were requirements that came directly through from the directives into legislation and regulation. But there were also a set of measures which were local policy measures where individual 
um, the Bald administrations could make their own policy. So the legislation, for example, doesn't describe the type of contract that you might want to use uh, to, you know, to run a procurement process against. So, for example, in Northern Ireland, in terms of construction contracts, we move to the NEC3 type of contract. Uh, that's, that's a local policy decision, not something that is um, within the, the, what was the existing legislation. But there always has been a, a bit of a discussion in the past as to whether we needed a procurement act. Uh, and the position we have taken up to this point is that we will deal with these things through administrative action rather than by a procurement act. Scotland, with a slightly different view, and produced a procurement reform act. Um, but that it is possible as we go forward, that might be a decision to to put strengthen any policy initiatives by putting additional legislation in place. I'm just and you know there's also an opportunity here because you know from listening to what you've said and thank you very much today for your evidence so far and the analysis we've had so far actually there's probably nothing to stop us having a in Northern Ireland first procurement process that previously we were told we couldn't do because of rules on EU competition and those sort of issues so there's no reason why we couldn't be going for a Northern Ireland first procurement process for all government contracts to begin with is there? Well, if, yeah, I suppose that, that that's a possibility. The issue then is, you know, if, if others would take, adopt the same um, approach, I think that it, the, actually the, there's a guidance note out from, uh, from England that says in the short term they should focus on uh, local suppliers for the low threshold uh, procurements. That's, you know, the thresholds that Michael had let out. Um, that sort of thing, I think, concerns us in that it would prevent Northern Ireland firms from bidding in. But one of the things I think we need to do is to make sure we run a procurement competition that we don't inadvertently um, rule out the opportunities for Northern Ireland firms and that we're always promoting the, you know, the Northern Ireland firm to be involved or have the opportunity to be involved in any contract that we're putting in place. And you know, we've had a number of examples about this the last couple of weeks where you know, it, things could have been made locally, but we've bought them off a catalogue that's been produced in the, you know, it's been produced in the EU. So I think one of the things that we're looking at is resilience of supply chains, and that gives us the opportunity to look at what we could do with Northern Ireland uh, suppliers. And I think some of the reshaping of the procurement board uh, to bring in representatives from industry and from manufacturing will allow us to shine that bit of light into the, what we've been doing in the past in terms of specifications and looking for opportunities for Northern Ireland firms. Do you know what, Des and Michael, what I'll call it as I'll call it, the Des and Michael Northern Ireland first bill, and we'll look forward to put that through <laughs> for a procurement. <laughs> Matthew? Wouldn't, wouldn't a Northern Ireland first procurement policy literally undermine the purpose of having a UK common frameworks? No? Yeah, I think the, the, the issue with the common framework is, it, it, you know, that's one of the issues where to get that balance between things that are needed in a local context, otherwise, why would you have procurement as it evolved matter and the impact that it might have on the suppliers that operate across all of the various jurisdictions. So, um, you know, you will, you will see things, I suppose, in England where 
you know, Merseyside uh, you know, wants to support suppliers and Merseyside and Manchester wants to do the same. But the, the white fans fly up and down the M62 uh, and like to have business in both areas. So there is issues around localism, uh, but I think it's more around rather than putting up barrier up and saying we do not want anybody other than folk from Bradford to work in Bradford into making sure that we we look at what the opportunity is from the total of the procurement and the total of the contract and make sure that we try and encourage participation in that um, rather than trying to set, you know, we do not want people from or organisations from other areas. Just on, on the, um, on, on the, the Brexit interaction and, and the, the which I know gets blamed for everything back day, um, JR being shot at Dallas, um, but, uh, it's right to say, obviously, procurement is not covered by the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's not about trade and goods. Um, uh, is there, have you had conversations with, I mean, this isn't about the politics of it one way or the other, it's just about how, how, how this stuff works. Presumably, you, per force, will procure pretty regularly from contractors of different kinds in the Republic and Northern Ireland. Um, uh, providers, whatever, the construction or whatever, um, will be contracted in the Republic. Um, what assessment has been done of the impact? Now, I know you said it's covered by the GPA, and theoretically, the General Procurement Agreement under the WTO should mean that there's a. Uh, if I understand, and I don't, this is a very technical area, but it's a principle of non discrimination, but it's not a deep, legally binding set of. Um, level playing field guarantees for providers that you get in the EU, whatever you think of the EU. Um, but given we don't have those protections anymore, what have there any conversations been had about impact on providers in the south who are perhaps regular people who contract for you and they're the best people and the most convenient for whatever reason, and likewise Northern Ireland providers contracting on the other side of the border if, about possible impact, or is there a possible impact? Yeah, well, I, I think well, obviously it's a, a developing situation and we need to be made aware of any impact that comes through that way. We, we have, uh, the Minister has reshaped the procurement board and we have a member on there, for example, from the construction industry. Uh, and we've asked for that member, um, you know, to give us sort of keep a watching brief, obviously on the impact, for example, on construction. And uh, we'd expect, we're having a meeting with the procurement board, I think next week. And we ask for a bit of an update on that just to try and, and really that's that sort of stuff I think is very useful coming from uh, supplier membership organizations who are feeling the you know the heat on the ground the issues that are practical um, and we, we need to keep a watching brief on that but you will always fall into a bit of an issue where you know the trade and the procurement issues clash a bit yeah, but it's how those are involved is is probably the, the difficult sticking point. Have you heard that? Um, sorry, I was just going to ask if you heard anecdotally about. Obviously, there will be a lot of contractors who who do work. For example, you know, new hospital being built in Dublin or school being built yeah. wherever, and they've uh, and they would have won contracts as a matter of course. Have you heard about any anecdotal evidence about? Uh, that stuff drying up, or there being obviously some of it's impacted by COVID, but there being um, reports of, uh, of 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 that work drying up or, or being jeopardised. 
I, I, don't, I don't think I've, we haven't heard anything directly on that. I think the big issue, obviously, has been the you know the closing down of the construction industry activity um, at this particular time. We're aware that a number of suppliers who operate in both North and South would have Northern Ireland and South in Ireland would have maybe stockpiled materials in anticipation of some issues arising, you know, across the end of the transition period, uh, but been able to fully service their contracts that they were involved in. And now the issue in, in the south of Ireland is that, and so in Ireland is that that's closed down. They're left with material that is sitting there, and they're a bit concerned then that you know they they need to get that material shifted so that they can replenish the stock for any future contracts that are in place. But I, I think one of the things that we need to do is over the next wee while is to again focus on what work we can do with the construction industry, for example, to get that feedback and try and come up with solutions and work with the industry to see if that can be resolved. But I think, for example, we could be a bit clearer, transparent, more transparent about where contracts are operating at the moment in terms of government and what the impact that is on those contracts and what flexibilities we better allow in contract terms in the short term allow for the sort of difficulties that are occurring if they are occurring. Okay. Pat. Okay. Yep. Go ahead, Pat. Uh, thanks very much, Chair. It's just uh, thanks, um, uh, uh, Michael and um, Des. I think it was. Yes. 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 Thank you. Uh, if this framework is adopted, suppose um, uh, we're looking at new powers that evolved into the executive. Uh, will the new legislative powers devolve to the north? Will they, they will, will they be devolved to the executive in respect of the public procurement? I suppose what will the powers look like? That's, that's me, that's all I have to ask. Well, the, the intention is that this, this framework will not be based on legislation. The, the overriding legislation will be uh, in the adjustments to the public procurement regulations. This is around uh, a commitment to not do anything at the policy level that would impact uh, without uh, further consideration on another party. So if we intend to do something in Northern Ireland on a policy area, this framework will commit us to discuss with Scotland, England and Wales our intention to do things and to take into account any impact it might have there. And similarly, uh, if Scotland or England or Wales decide to do something on a policy area, they need to understand and allow us to put an input in for Northern Ireland, as you know, so they are aware of any impact on that. But it, it's not legislation; it's more, I suppose, around official to official uh, discussions. But that's the intention at the moment. Okay. Well, then, suppose is there a timeline then for for phase four of this public procurement framework development process? Are we talking years? Michael, do, do you want to just? Update us where we are with the progress on the on the, the various phases. It's it's not that the, the, the phase four will take long. I think the the problem that at the minute is that we haven't managed to secure the JMC um, agreement to complete stage um, three yet. Um, I think the timeline on it is months rather than than years. I mean, it, it's the public procurement one is certainly as as it says in the framework is not critical. Um, because we have the, the legal framework already in place to keep procurement operable. But I, I would imagine that it, it's 
a matter of months once the agreement is reached at JMCEN. I'm sure that will definitely come back to this committee, won't it, for us to consider and respond to? Yeah. So how long how will the, how long will the committee have to consider and respond to the public procurement common framework? Either Des or Michael. We would be led by cabinet office on that chair, and they are setting the timelines around that. But I would imagine it would be um, you know three to four weeks at least. And there is a, a series of engagements to go in stage four again. Three to four weeks. Okay. Thanks, Tim. And uh, can you indicate how the Concordat will be signed off, and what happens if Northern Ireland ministers decide they're not going to sign it? As probably reasonably within their rights not to sign it. Um, the Concordat is really just setting down um, the framework again in, a, in another document. Um, we've had a Concordat, as I said, existing since the um, uh, late 90s. All the administrations have. Um, it's not something new to us. Um, there is still a need to coordinate um, some procurement um, reporting activities as a member of GPA, which would have to come from UK. It couldn't come from the individual um, administrations. Um, so there'll be a need for something in there. There may be some negotiation on the exact content of the concordat. Um, but it, it's quite within your rights to say that you, you don't, don't agree with it. Yeah, it's quite within your rights to say we're not going to sign it. But I think by your implication, it doesn't make any difference whether we sign it or not. That would be a fair assessment. <laughs> thank you, Ted. Thank you, Michael. And thank you very much indeed for your, for your time. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, sir. Okay. Uh, team, uh, subject to the indicated timescale surrounding the conclusion of the phase four work, uh, we'll probably think I would like to commission Reyes to do some more uh, tribution paper on the applicable legislation covering the Concordat when it comes, and also to formally seek the views of our counterpart committees in the Scottish and Welsh, Welsh parliaments, and potentially seek evidence from social enterprise. But I would like to get evidence from the Constructors Employers Federation on the subject if we are agreed. 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 Move on to uh, item number seven on the agenda, a briefing for the organisation of OECD, public sector reform. Matthew, this is uh, your sort of, uh, Bit of geekery. It's a baby, this is your geeky thing. It's not geeky, it's not very fair. Adam, can you hear us? Come in, Adam. Thank you. Hello, Adam. How are you? Welcome to the. Hi, I'm well. How are you? Welcome to the Northern Ireland Assembly uh, Finance Committee, and uh, thank you very much indeed. Um, sort of team. Uh, Clark's cover note and public sector reform is on page 102. Uh, the OECD's PowerPoint presentation is pages 106 and 131, and the written finance and the Department of Finance written briefing is on page 151. Adam, could you care to make your statement, please? Thank you very much indeed. Well, good afternoon, uh, everybody. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me to uh, share some uh, evidence on um, what the OECD thinks constitutes good governance, sound public governance. Um, I was asked to present this last fall um, because I was told that the, um, the Northern Ireland Assembly, and particularly the, the Finance Committee, was interested in the um, building blocks of, of, uh, of good governance, of, of sound public administration um, from an international perspective. So as it happens, we have a, a narrative document 
that actually provides um, this kind of evidence in what we hope is a coherent and integrated fashion uh, that is based on uh, approximately um, almost 15 years worth of work in this area. Um, the, it's called the Policy Framework on Sound Public Governance. Uh, it was finally published um, uh, late last year, but it, it, it constitutes the culmination of, uh, of about 15 years worth of work. It's based uh, mostly on something called a public governance review, and that's um, an integrative assessment tool that national and subnational governments, constituent governments, ask the OECD to undertake to identify what works, what doesn't, and why uh, in terms of the institutional and functional arrangements of the executive branch of government and to provide recommendations or advice uh, based on international good practice. Um, so this work started in 2013, culminating at the end of 2020 with the publication of the document, uh, the highlights of which uh, I sent you. The framework is designed to be an integrated diagnostic and benchmarking tool to uh, implement public governance programs, to harness public governance approaches for more. Mm. And governance considerations that need to be taken into account. Um, and this framework hopefully can contribute to uh, raising awareness of what those are and of including them in the, the uh, healthcare policy framework. And it, uh, it's designed to help governments move closer to OECD standards and practice. Uh, I should underscore that we conducted, uh, and I had the honor myself, a public governance review of Northern Ireland. It was the first PGR uh, of a constituent government uh, we started in late 2014, we delivered it in early 2016. Um, so the policy framework reflects in part uh, the findings uh, from that PGR as well as from 20 odd others. Um, the framework weaves together the uh, existing OECD legal instruments and tools um, in public governance. It uh, integrates evidence of emerging good practice in areas of public governance uh, in which no OECD, no OECD legal instrument yet exists, and it builds on similar exercises um, that have been developed uh, by OECD agencies such as uh, the EU Sigma Group, uh, as well as um, the World Bank and uh, UPAN and others. Um, the, uh, the framework is aimed at uh, several target audiences. It, it's aimed at the centers of government, uh, the the um, government offices, the prime minister's offices, the president's offices, um, the first minister's offices, uh, wishing to um, assess government's participation, decision-making and policy-making arrangements in order to improve their efficiency and effectiveness. It's aimed at the legislative and ju judicial branches uh, that are seeking to modernize their approaches to governance. It's aimed at line ministries and govern, government agencies and other public institutions, and it's aimed at civil society organizations. Um, the, the elements of the framework are 
deceptively simple on one level. We there are values that underpin good governance. There are the enablers of good governance, and then there are the policy instruments and the management tools. So the narrative is divided into two parts. Part one, which has two chapters in it, focuses on values and enablers. Uh, the values include integrity, openness and transparency, inclusiveness, participation, gender equality and diversity, accountability and respect for the rule of law. Um, the enablers relate to commitment, uh, political and civil service vision and leadership, equitable and evidence-informed policymaking, whole of government coordination across administrative silos and policy areas, and innovation and change management, uh, which is code for tolerance for failure. <laughs> um, the second part, it's very important to learn from failure. Uh, successes are one thing. You fail, you have to understand why. It's not what, it's not failing, it's what you do with the failure. Um, the, uh, the, the second part is divided into three further chapters. Uh, and we could have sliced and diced this any way uh, you wanted, but we, what we looked at was the continuum, continuum of the policymaking cycle. So we started with policy formulation and design, uh, and then we moved to policy implementation, uh, and then we look at uh, policy evaluation. So um, in the policy formulation and design, first thing you have to do is, is to identify what the problem is, if there's a problem, and is it a problem for governments to solve, um, then uh, how do you use your strategic, uh, how do you use your instruments and tools strategically? Um, of course, there are, there are two clusters of, of instruments. There's rulemaking, that's what you do. They're, they're making, making of regulations and rules, uh, and there's spending money or not spending money. Um, and we look at um, uh, strategic tools related to skills. Have you got the right people with the right skill sets in the right place at the right time to design and deliver policies and services that actually meet the needs of citizens and in a way that you know that they are in fact being met? Uh, bolster strategic planning, multi-year, multi-dimensional, digital capacity, uh, and in, in order to improve the quality of policy formulation and design. Um, then uh, uh, you have implementation, um, how you manage it uh, through um, strengthening of the digitization process, um, strengthening skill capacity, uh, well-designed public procurement systems. You were just talking about that before. Uh, strategic agility of the government. Can you move quickly to deal with an issue? Can you identify it correctly and then harness the stakeholders and the players and the tools and the money? Um, how you engage uh, in public-private and public-civic pub, uh, partnerships. And then after also at monitoring, is, it being, is the policy being implemented properly? How do you know? Can you demonstrate that it is? And then the final chapter focuses on uh, policy evaluation systems, uh, building an institutional framework for policy evaluation, 
fostering a culture of evaluation. It's important to understand um, the difference between monitoring and evaluation. Monitoring is simply uh, ticking boxes. Did you, did you spend this money on X and did it do what it was supposed to do? Evaluation is different. It's normative. It, it requires you to step back and say, and look at the initial objectives that you have identified uh, as the rationale for putting the policy into place and then assessing whether having rolled the policy out and implemented it, did you achieve the strategic objectives you were trying to achieve? So when you built the hospital, okay, you can tick the box, you built the hospital, but did the hospital and its ecosystem lead to better public health outcomes? Uh, did um, building the subway line lead to a reduction in GHG emissions? That is the essence of evaluation. Um, and it's important to create uh, mechanisms and structures to foster that kind of evaluation. Uh, and what we call feedback loops. In other words, take the results of the evaluation and feed it back into the policymaking process uh, leading to next generation policies that hopefully are better. So this uh, framework, as I say, was was the subject of um, uh, a year's a year year's worth of consultation process with OECD country members, civil society organizations, uh, civil servants, international organizations, and the general public. We held a an online consultation process using social media. Um, conclude, I just want to leave you with uh, thoughts about the future of this framework. The framework was always aimed uh, at being evergreen. Um, the, the, the document that you have in front of you uh, is, the, was the, is the first iteration of this. Um, but in future iterations, we, we want to include, uh, you know, more and more sophisticated performance indicators in order to assist governments in moving along the spectrum of maturity models uh, for various building blocks in public governance. Um, we're already beginning to think about a, a policy framework 2.0 that um, will emphasize key institutional and functional trends adopted by member govern governments to manage the COVID crisis and to plan for a sustainable and inclusive recovery. This will necessarily highlight at a minimum the increasingly strategic role played by centers of government in managing the crisis and its aftermath. Um, so that's about it. Um, I'm, uh, I'm happy to answer any questions you might have. Um, and as I say, we, uh, we conducted a public governance review of Northern Ireland uh, in uh, 2015, 2014 to 2016. Uh, so this uh, framework uh, reflects some of the um, the findings that were uh, that appear in the public governance review of, of Northern Ireland. And I hear disposal. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much indeed for your presentation. And I apologise if it broke up a bit as we went through. Uh, one of the biggest problems we have now in sort of virtual governance seems to be that the virtual bit seems to collapse quite a few times. But um, look. <laughs> Uh, all the hard work you did in 2016, 
if you were marking us on a balanced scorecard, where would we be? That's very easy to answer, and I hope you don't regard it, regard what I'm about to say as flippant. Uh, but I have no idea since I've not set foot in Belfast since 2016. Uh, I don't know what the government did uh, with the recommendations we, uh, which is unfortunate because we had offered to accompany uh, the uh, the Department of Finance and Personnel to implement the advice we had provided. This is not a criticism, uh, absolutely not criticism, but I can't answer your question about where you are. Furthermore, um, uh, there was a long period between 2016 and now where th th there was, you had gone, you reversed the direct rule from, from London. So uh, the short answer to your question is, I don't know, but I'm happy to <laughs> work with you to find out where you're at. I think that, I'm sorry, it was a slightly disingenuous question of mine. Because obviously one of the major pieces of trying to get the administration back up here and running was public sector reform because it urgently needed it. And indeed the Northern Ireland Civil Service needs significant reform to be able to deliver. And many of the recommendations that came from your OECD report on particularly about programme for government and process uh, seem to um, from an outsider's perspective, seem to have been uh, looked at, but haven't seemed to be particularly actioned. And I find it's quite strange because at the moment we're supposedly being as if there are on tablets on high from the mountains are about to be delivered to us about how the necessary public sector reform is going to be done. And I find it quite interesting that the experts in public sector reform who helped write the report in the first place haven't been invited to come and have a look and have a quick look at the balanced scorecard. Uh, I was asked in the media the other day what I thought if it was on a balanced scorecard because unfortunately I worked in government for too long and I know all about these things. And I said there would be an awful lot of reds and very few up arrows. So uh, I would really like that you to come to be brought in and to come back having done the original work and sort of to mark the homework in a way of being independent. But I think I hope that's not a forlorn hope, but it may be one of the things we as a committee afterwards might be asking the Department of Finance to do, uh, even for a desktop exercise, which everybody seems to be doing. But uh, there's a few questions from the committee just to come, come through. Sir Matthew. Thank you, Chair. Um, well, you've sort of stolen my thunder because I was going to suggest that um, the OECD come back in some form, whether that's virtually, to, to do a a, an evaluation review or a, an update since 2016. Um, uh, you mentioned, Adam, that some of the, your, the framework you've just talked us through was born out of or, or was inspired by putting it too strongly, um, uh, or it, it was influenced by your time here and studying governance here. What, what do you mean by that? What specifically? Well, uh, what I meant was that the um, genesis uh, of the uh, creation of the public policy framework uh, was the um, OECD member states, the representatives who focus on public governance issues, sit on one of the 26 committees of the OECD called the Public Governance Committee. Um, 
place. That was the end of the answer. Can you hear me? Are we, are we just we, cut out for a second? Okay. Back now. Hello? Yeah, you're, you're back now, Adam. We can hear you now. So, so in 2013, the, the Public Governance Committee asked the Secretariat to produce lessons learned from these public governance review. I mean, each country is different. Each country has its own sui generis approach to governance. But beyond these, these distinctive attributes, are there commonalities from which we can draw some useful lessons on how to improve governance under the assumption, of course, that good governance is not an end in itself, it's a means to serve citizens better. So we went about compiling these lessons. There were indeed commonalities. I mean, as, as I know you know, the, the OECD is made up of a wide variety of governance systems from highly centralized presidential systems to constitutional monarchies to highly decentralized federations. Yet there are commonalities that speak to um, methods that work best across all of these systems on how to serve citizens properly. That, that is the genesis that led to the construction of this narrative that is presented in the policy framework. The repository of those lessons are first and foremost the 20 odd public governance reviews that we conducted since the first one was in 2007. Uh, and uh, one of those 20 odd reviews was the one for Northern Ireland. Uh, okay. Um just on the, the that review, which is obviously extremely thorough, 500 pages long, 500 pages long, and the, one of the um, first um, biggest conclusions you come to, and obviously something that we all probably have come to as well, is the importance of given the mandatory coalition and the consociational. That's my phone. Someone else's. Um, and the consociational nature of our institutions, the importance of a uh, multi-year program for government uh, with agreed strategic objectives uh, and, and policy outcomes. Um, not trying to put you on the spot, but how, if I was to put it to you that since you did your review, we're on the same draft program for government that I think would have been uh, the, whenever you're, I believe this program, you, the, the review was published in mid 2016. Well, our institutions are using the same draft program for government, which has never actually been signed off. Um, so, uh, do, do you think, given the, the conclusion in that document, was that the nature of a mandatory coalition with the you know, the split in our society, tragic and um, frustrating though it is at times, it's it, it there and we have these, they have these institutions, that 
did you find that it was particularly important for our institutions, more so than in other um, types of governance, that we have a, an agreed programme to be working to? Uh, if I've understood, the short answer is yes. I think it's extremely important to build consensus around a set of commonly defined policy objectives uh, that get translated into specific government actions over the life of, the, of its mandate, over the four or five years, uh, that these also constitute or the result of a consensus that's been built, uh, particularly in in um, jurisdiction like Northern Ireland, where you yourself said where the, the historic divisions are such that you can't really do anything without some degree of consensus. So what, what we were trying to advise in the area of, of coordination and, and uh, uh, strategic planning is is to overcome the silos, whether they're uh, administrative policy or or uh, community, uh, in order to agree on a set of common mid medium term development objectives for the society for for Northern I for Northern Ireland and its citizens. Uh, so yes, that 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 was one of the drivers of of the. Uh, of the review. And I have one, I'll try to make this one quicker, um, one further question. I don't know if you, and I'm sure the OECD does work, but I don't know if you've looked at the related question of public trust in political institutions yes. and governance. Do you think there is a, a, a sort of inverse proportionality to the, um, when you've got a political institutions that require, that are have, for example, a mandatory coalition that have m more coalitions or more consociational, consensual, involve you know, grand coalitions uh, of either mandatory or voluntary. That there is, does that make it more important that you have clear, deliverable policy uh, plans in the sense that if you have a, for example, at Westminster at the minute they have a single party government, but I might dislike very much their political agenda. They do have a. An overwhelming majority, so there's, in a sense, um, uh, th there's less pressure on them to prove to the public their legitimacy because they. Have, does, does that make sense? Uh, I, I would uh, submit that there is there isn't necessarily uh, a causal relationship. Um, uh, it's not up to me to to engage in in uh, political uh, discussions, uh, but you have current situations where governments have a very strong majority in parliament and where trust is declining extremely rapidly. And you have other situations in which you have what the, the British call hung parliaments that are working very well. Uh, we've done a lot of work on, on public trust in, in government. Um, trust is, what the economists call a positive externality it's it's um it's an effect it it's it's not uh it's not an objective of policy making it's, it's a byproduct of good policy making and one of the drivers that we've seen across the membership we've done studies in korea and in japan in european countries in the united states and canada and in latin america over the course of the, over the course of several years one of the essential quintessential drivers of trust is service quality. 
it, if, it doesn't matter whether you've got a huge majority or you're, you're, you're clinging to a, a hung parliament. If your services are of good quality and are perceived as being of good quality, and there is universal access, um, and the government turns around quickly to respond to a request, that does more to stimulate, to raise trust in government than almost anything else. Jim. Yeah, I hear nothing from you about opposition. Do you not think that a properly functioning and funded opposition is a vital component in delivering good government? Yes, absolutely. Um, we. Uh, we are beginning work. Uh, we're beginning uh, works. Democracy. Um, the the public governance directorate, where I is the directorate in which I work, you see, uh, has focused on the executive branch, so the the administration of government, the machinery of government, if you will. Um, but given what's been happening across the OECD in the past 18 to 24 months. I mean, France faced uh, the Gilets Jaunes over a 12-month period two years ago. Uh, the United States is going through what it's going through. Other countries are, are going through um, situations in which the political middle is being hollowed out. These issues um, are now becoming front and center for the Public Governance Committee. Uh, and the challenge, therefore, that we are beginning to look at is how can the civil service and how can the public administration contribute to sustaining effective democracy? And of course, um, one, of the, one of the hallmarks uh, of uh, OECD democracies is the existence of uh, uh, a, a governing coalition and an opposition that, that can um, play the challenge function. So, uh, but as I say, our, our function, our, our role is to look at, at the, the executive branch, the administration, and how it can contribute uh, strengthening the future of democracy. So could I suggest to you that the next time you look at Northern Ireland, you might examine the negative impact on good government both of not having an opposition and having an absurd system of government, but you can't change your government. Well, we, we're, we're certainly open to looking at anything. We would have to discuss uh, the, um, I'm sorry to sound like a bureaucrat here, but we'd, we'd have to discuss the terms of reference of whatever it is we would, we would do with, with Northern Ireland. Um, I, I personally think it might be worthwhile to take a look at the current situation, benchmark it against the uh, advice that was given in 2016, see what progress has been made, uh, see where uh, there's still things that could be done, um, and uh, you know possibly work with uh, the government and the assembly to implement the advice that, that we gave. If we need to change the advice as a result of five years' worth of evolution, then we can we can certainly do that. But I, uh, we're, I, I guess the bottom line is that 
we stand ready to work with you. Uh, we would simply have to decide uh, uh, the framework of, of uh, how we would engage. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Uh, just, just before you go, Adam, uh, just skipping through my uh, papers here, I've discovered that uh, the uh, department is indeed has produced a balanced scorecard against what they've achieved against OECD recommendations. And I won't, uh, obviously, for issues of confidentiality, read them out, but it will not come as no surprise to you that they've scored themselves nearly all green. <laughs> <laughs> But Adam, well, the uh, department hasn't shared it with us, so we we can't we don't know. <laughs> I don't think I would be scoring it that way. Adam, thank you very much indeed, and thank you very much indeed for your time. And apologies for the slightly dodgy link, but thank you, and keep safe. It's a pleasure. Thank you keep very safe. much. Thank you very time. much indeed. Thank you. Okay, team. Thanks very much indeed. Um, it's interesting that. Uh, the OECD haven't done the report in 2016 um, and where the genesis of a lot of the work that's supposed to be in public sector reform and where we're getting to hasn't been invited back to at least even do a desktop review of where we're going to and also to the fact that fairly shortly uh, if we've been given the understanding is there are various papers going through the executive at the moment about uh, reforming the Northern Ireland Civil Service and particularly taking in RHI reforms and how government is being managed I would like your consensus and approval that we write to the Minister uh, asking him uh, to invite OECD back to do a desktop review of progress that has been made, so that will give us as a committee at least an independent arbitration of effectiveness of the reforms that they are likely to be, because the Department has reported Greens against itself, which I think most departments would ever do. But I think it might be useful, bearing in mind the work that the OECD did in the first place, and particularly with their, uh, the emphasis on co-design, I cannot see any reason why the Minister wouldn't want OECD back to do at least a desktop review of progress and what they have done so far, if we are content. Mr. Chair, I would only be content with that if the terms of reference include looking at the capability of the system of delivering good government. I think that is a very fair commentary, and I think we'd be happy to do that. Matthew? I, I, I agree. Basically, I mean, I do, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I understand what Jim is saying that, but I'm not sure that would be, uh, as it were, in order. I don't mean in what your comments aren't in order. I just mean they may not be able to do that in the time scale that we would be asking them. But I agree with the general principle. I don't have any objection to the, yeah, to to what Jim said. But I do think the um, I think the general idea of getting them to. And not benchmarking update. Well, rather than rather than uh, as we'd normally do, is a sort of uh, draft a letter by committee. Uh, we'll draft a letter. I'll circulate it around you for any comments, and then we'll we'll send that off. We'll be content. Okay. Thank you. Next item on the agenda: chairperson's business. I just want to inform you that on Monday, uh, the finance minister met myself and the deputy chair, and we discussed the uh, pre-monitoring round. Uh, second item of chairperson's business, I've been made aware that there's another bill that's a private member's bill that's likely to come in our way, and it's uh, the defamation bill, uh, defamation bill raised by Mike Nesbitt, which comes under our purview because obviously through the departmental solicitors and the, the rule to do that as well. As I get any other details, I will inform you. I'll inform the, the deputy chair, but we will we'll, we'll brief you as you go forward. I also note from comments that have been made from various members of the role of having a member of the committee who was helping 
as we went through the bill process, regardless of what we thought of the bill, but actually having somebody available of that and the view that having an ex officio member um, during that process was particularly helpful. Obviously, can't vote on the bill, but actually can provide, you know, is there to provide questions and the rest of it. I'm going to take extra advice on that and through the sort of the chair and also through the speaker's office to do that. But I think that might be a that might be a good framework to do that as well. Jim, do you want to come in? Yeah, I, I was just going to say I had intended at some point to suggest that the committee should write to the procedures committee yeah. promoting such an idea. I think there was an amendment drafted in Paul, by Paul which wasn't called at consideration stage, which encapsulated the idea. I must say, having been involved in two private members' bills, one where I wasn't on the committee and one where I was, the difference from the perspective of the uh, sponsor member is quite considerable, and I think equally probably from the point of view of the committee. So, If the committee was willing, I would like to see this committee advocate to the procedures committee that they look at that in, in the light of what was in Paul's draft amendment. Yeah. And sort of Gemma, I remember that uh, I remember one yep. of your discussions about trying to get through a, a sort of private member's bill and the difficulties you were having. Would you be content for us to write in that uh, if we were to raise that and write that to the um, what committee again? procedures committee? Pro yeah. Procedures committee. I'll be writing anyhow to the uh, sort of to the speaker and also to the procedures committee. But I think as a committee, it might be worth us writing so we can at least explore the issues because I think Gemma, you raised the issue, and I think it would be quite useful. And regardless of uh, where we stand in Jim's bill, but actually having the bill's sponsor present while we're going through some of the evidence gathering session, I thought was very useful. It sort of, and it added it added a lot, I think, to the analysis and the scrutiny of the processes we're going forward. Yeah, I'm sure that that shouldn't do any harm. I don't think. Um, just be interesting to see what what is said or what the procedure is around it. Okay, thanks, Jim. I'll do that. I'll I'll. I'll I'll take that as an action to report back to the uh, report back to the committee. Uh, Sorry, Jim. A couple of things. First of all, I see Robinson wants just announced five hundred pound recognition payment to every health worker, so that'll help get rid of some of the money we were talking about earlier. Yay! Uh, and secondly, excellent health minister. Shall I record our vote <laughs> of thanks in our health minister and the Ulster Unionist Party? Yes. <laughs> yep. Uh, that is not an election year for me. What do you see next year, Jim? <laughs> Glad to see, you, Mr. Chairman, you're entirely impartial. <laughs> And only on some things, Mr. Wells. What I would say on the, I know whilst the procedures are looking at this, is there anything to stop us asking Mr. Nesbitt to come and sit in those, when, when we're discussing his bill, and to sit and we can ask him questions? Is there anything actually to stop us doing that now? Uh, I think the problem is. Sorry, through the, through the clerk. Sorry, sorry, um, sorry, we'll sorry. Take, 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 take. I think the problem is that if the bill sponsor isn't on the committee, yeah. Then he only has speaking rights when he's called to give evidence. evidence. Yeah. Whereas if he was an ex officio member, yeah. uh, though he wouldn't have voting rights, he would be there at all times the bill was being discussed or could be. But is that or not she? semantics because could we not mm. permanently ask him to come and give evidence every time his bill is no. being discussed? No, I think no, that would think be so. a bit of a no, through the chair, but through the chair I think the easiest thing is actually uh, Peter if we can get some uh, if the member is right, clarity would be part But my understanding is the standing orders already permit, or sorry, maybe not standing orders, but uh, practice already permits the committee to invite any member onto the committee. They can't ask questions, they obviously can't vote, 
but they could make comments. Yeah. Uh, but clarity from procedures committee okay. would be a probably. I think a I think it would be useful. Chair. And Chair. sorry, just for the sake of the record as well, Gemma, that was uh, he or she uh, doing sort of the details and asking the questions. Sorry, yeah, Paul. Why it's important that they come on as an ex official is the very point that the clerk makes, so that they can ask the questions. Yeah. Because you can be you can bet your bottom dollar the person who knows the bill the best mm. isn't the scrutiny committee or the members. Yeah. It's the actual bill sponsor, and they will ask the most ingrained question and the most informed question, and hopefully then get the most sufficient answer, which then informs us all as a committee. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's import, really important that there's a presence felt for any bill sponsor. I I am a big supporter of this now. Uh, it was Gemma inspired me with regards to my amendment, which wasn't picked up or taken by the speaker, but. The, the presence should still stand. It, it helped us immeasurably by having the bill sponsor sitting on this committee by, by chance. It should be an effect and it should be a practice that this, all committees now would encounter going through um, all scrutiny of bills. Yeah. Really. And, and speak, sorry, go ahead, Jim. And he's just announced £2,000 for non salaried qualified nurses as well, so the money's been. Excellent. Going out of department in castle buildings. Well done, Robin Swan, the health minister. Well done, the Ulster Unionist Party. Hurrah! Right. <laughs> Sorry, Pat. Hello, can you hear me? Can you, do you bring me on the sand? Yes, we can, Pat. Okay, no, that is well done. But uh, I do have to, to stop you and your enthusiasm there, Chair, because this was muted by the STLP back on the 17th of June. I think that we can, we can say that it's across the garden. It's well-deserved, and we welcome it, having it been called out first by Mark H. Durkin of the STLP. So, yeah. great. That the minister is listening. They'll have many fathers. Here, 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 here. But just to move on to go to the germane matter, I think uh, we'll yeah. write to the we'll write to uh, the. Sorry, go ahead, Pat. Uh, I, I just I hope uh, when that does come out, and I'm thinking from the finance department. Could we not could we not broaden that out to include car workers in the independent sector as well? Uh, I think we can wait another five minutes, actually, as those briefings are coming through. Not saying I might have some slight knowledge of this. We tend to get all of, a lot of our information coming in very late too. But you know, it's just that it's something else that's on top of that that will be good to see that those that are workers in the independent sector are also thought of because they have to an absolute Hercules job as well. Okay, thank you very much indeed. But I think uh, the action uh, we indicated particularly on uh, uh, inviting ex officio members on for the bill, I think we should uh, we'll proceed with that. Um, but we will take advice and legal advice we'll do it, Peter as well. Move on to the next item of the agenda, item number nine, correspondence. Uh, draw members' attention to the correspondence at page 138. Uh, draw members' attention to correspondence, page 174, from NISRA, with its analysis of sickness absence in the Northern Ireland Civil Service. Uh, the figures show that absence in the first quarter of the financial year was lower than the previous years. The number of days lost was down by a third, and the proportion of staff with no periods of absence was up by around 10 per cent. However, during the summer, absence increased a little. COVID-related absence accounts for only about 5 per cent of absence in the period. 45% of absence was recorded as stress-related. Do members have any commentary? 
Are we, are we happy to note? Say agreed. Agreed. Uh, next item on the agenda review of the financial process. Uh, draw the members' attention to correspondence to the Department, including a draft guidance booklet on the spring supplementary estimates, which indicates that the review of financial processes has been delayed to 2223. The SSC booklet explains a lot of terminology in the estimates document, which members will receive at the meeting on the 10th of February 21. The Department is revising the financial process involving improved alignment between the estimates and departmental annual reports and accounts, and the Department has apparently previously sought feedback from the Committee on the level of detail it wants to see in departmental budget papers and ask other departments engaged with the committees. If we are happy, I would like us to write to the Department seeking an update on the SSE dry run process and the estimates guidance booklet when they say uh, when they say it's complete. Go ahead, Jim. Uh, at page 209 of the pack, we have what's proposed in respect of the black box issue. Mm -hmm. I previously <laughs> raised that I would like a column of clear explanation as to why there is no legislation in place and why this particular, why any particular item relies on the authority of the Budget Bill only. Bishop mm -hmm. previously said such a column could be provided, mm -hmm. but it hasn't been done in this draft. And it should be there. I, I would like such a column, and I think the committee agreed. has agreed that in the past. I think we agree to that as well. Um, the other issue as well, uh, we are doing this in the spring supplementary estimates. We're looking at, again, we're looking at financial processes. We're looking at all this. But yet again, we still don't have the Fiscal Council in place, and it's now well over a year since uh, the Fiscal Council was first mooted as part of the new decade, new approach. And I think, again, the Minister has told us on numerous occasions we're about to get details of the Fiscal Council shortly or this week or whatever. I would propose that we write to the Minister again and also contact the DALO to get some information on when we're actually going to see this Fiscal Council. And we should have a statement or a, a note from him stating when this is likely to go ahead. Because I have sat here for well over a year hearing the Minister, and I'm sure he's doing it. Uh, he is telling us in all good faith that he is about to produce this Fiscal Council, the Memorandum of Understanding for it, its terms of reference, and the rest of it. And so far, here we are. We have seen nothing. Okay. Um, are, are we agreed? Agreed. Uh, move on to uh, Committee for the Con Economy, Support for Students. Uh, note and correspondence, page 278. Copy to the Committee from the Committee for the Economy to the First and Deputy First Ministers in respect of COVID support funding for students or other excluded groups. Are we content? Content. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, PAC report on the Land Web Project and Digital Transformation. I'd like to draw attention to the correspondence on page 281 from the Digital Accounts Committee, including its report on the Land Web Project and Digital Transformation. Uh, I would like to schedule a briefing from the Department of Finance once the PAC has considered the memorandum of reply in response to any recommendations. Now, that is the formal mechanism because it is still with the PAC, even though the report has been published, but it's still with the PAC. However, I have a real concern because we have heard the Minister already saying that he's looking to do additional spends potentially on issues of ICT and other sort of uh, 
short-term uh, measures to be able to spend part of this budget uh, uh, in, or the uh, 1.5 billion. I am really concerned, if you read that report, the discussion points about BT and how BT basically ran rings around the department for the best part of a, a very long time. And I would be very concerned that BT are being considered for future contracts unless there has been significant changes. If you read that report, all it shows is the department just got rings run round it by BT. And yet again, we're told on many occasions BT are the preferred bidder or what they need to do. I would propose that we write to the minister asking him to consider whether any contracts with BT are suspended until such times as the formal memorandum of reply has been delivered by the PAC. And furthermore, the various uh, committees have had the chance to establish whether using BT for future government contracts is an appropriate way of using government monies. Would we be agreed? Uh, if I may, Chair, I suppose I think it's important to be cautious about this stuff. I should declare, I guess, an interest, but also I'm on PAC and, and was involved in this yeah. inquiry. Um, there are real serious issues about this contract going way back and BT, you know, the just on, if it's anything that has to do with the PAC's work extant, we shouldn't be discussing it. But it's, it's, it's just in the published, the published. It's not. No, no. This, okay, this right, is already right. published. I just wanted to make sure we. No, no, no. I wouldn't. Um, uh, this is not. It's been established through significant issues around this contract, and it's been reported both by the NIAO, which firstly reported on this several months ago, and then by the Public Accounts Committee. Um, you know, having said that. I would be cautious about us as a committee implying that we are making a judgment that one particular commercial provider should be sworn off getting you know, a, a, a bit of work here or there, um, which we presume would be in line with procurement rules. Uh, the reason being that um, I'm, I'm in no way defending a company that, you know, that profited too handsomely from the public sector here over the course of a number of years, but at the same time they are still the provider. Uh, they are still the extant provider to the um, uh, to the department, and I just that would I would be slightly cautious about us taking a view that, as a committee that we somehow disapproved of one com one particular commercial provider. I think maybe should we could I shall suggest a set of words with the, the clerk that I'll circulate, okay. but is to be cautious about letting particularly ICT contracts. There will be a push to use the 0.5 billion less what. Um, we're, uh, come on, keep on, to, keep on keeping the updated uh, figures. No further announcement. Uh, Money's pouring out of castle buildings as we speak. Oh, that's slow. <laughs> Should be in a few more minutes. <laughs> right. um, chair, chair. Yep. Go on, Melissa. Yeah, just I'd like to endorse exactly what Matthew has said there, and I think that uh, maybe we need to be very, very careful just on our own wording. Uh, and the way we actually deal with the, the, the situation that uh, because it would uh, nearly imply that we have a prejudice uh, before we even start, you know, in regards to BT or anything else. Okay, I think I think what we should do is I'll I'll suggest a set of words to circulate amongst you, but it is to be very cautious of companies that, that we have that are concerns with, particularly with the that have been raised by indeed the PAC and the audit office. Uh, as we go forward, because there will be a large amount of pressure to spend a lot of money in a short period of time, and what we don't want to do, as we heard the language earlier on from the sort of the Department of Finance, 
and sort of things from novel spending approaches and the rest of it. We do not want to be getting ourselves in a situation where afterwards we will be looking at this and saying, why did we go ahead with this particular piece? We're content. Yep. Uh, Department of Justice contractors taking legal challenges. Um, the correspondence on page 305 from the Department of Justice in respect to legal challenges taken by contractors as part of the procurement process. Department of Justice advises there are a number of other reforms underway in respect of several proceedings there, but appears to be no plans at this stage to alter current arrangements. Do we have any comments on that? Because I remember when we were in the committee, we did discuss it. It seemed uh, the fact, particularly when um, contractors, there seemed to be this process in, within uh, the Northern Ireland system where uh, we seem to be spending more time and more expense dealing with JRs than we actually did with the construction issues. And we asked the Department of Justice for a view on that. I, th I think, Chair, the point actually was that um a disappointed company could delay the entire process Correct. at relatively minor cost, namely the cost of issuing um, challenging proceedings to challenge in JR, yep. which then might lie dormant for some months, and then at the end they might withdraw them or whatever, uh, and that was stymieing the actual progress of uh, procurement. I think that was the point, and I think the point that was raised with the department was would a way of dealing with that be to make the fees to initiate such a yes. process higher? And I think the department's been explaining that, well, you know, they've set out what the costs are for a writ, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously there would be difficulties in being selective. You couldn't say only a contractor would pay a high fee, et cetera. So I think, it, I think they were pointing out the impracticalities of being able to do much about it. Okay. Are we happy then, content to note it? Great. Okay. Uh, from the Department of Finance, response to the Committee for the Executive Office re EU Structural Funds. Correspondence on page 313, the Department of Finance, the Committee for the Executive Office, copy to the Committee with detail of funding of project related to EU structural funds. Any members' comments? Matthew? Basically, we don't have the information yet, so I, what I was asked your agreement was that we uh, ask the department to keep us advised when the executive decisions pertaining to replacement funding once it's been available, if we have, if we're agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Great. Uh, move uh, members' attention to the composite request on page 317. Note the committee's composite information request and to grant an extension to the department regarding the procurement board update as the board is due to meet early next week. When are they due to come and speak to us? I think we had actually written to them, so we uh, we'd asked for an update. I don't know if we asked for an oral update, but um, I think it was uh, probably on the 29th we were asking them to write back. They're saying I think they want at least another five, possibly ten days, because the board meets on the 3rd, I think. I think we're happy. Yep. Yeah. Time. Sir Matthew? I don't know if it's the right time to raise it, if, but it's, if, we're on the, if we're on correspondence and our information requests, yeah, go ahead. Um, how, did we ever hear back from my beloved former employers at the Treasury? Nope. I haven't heard back from them at all. Right, sorry. We made a request for, um, before your time, Peter, shows how long it's taken, um, in, I think, November now, for an evidence session 
um, and we had we initially had to bounce back in part I think because it went to a, a sort of generic inbox but then we still discovered the correct official um, to basically request either a some kind of briefing on um, I think it was initially the spending review actually um, uh, but I think it's even more pertinent now given what we know yeah. but well, ask him. Ask him again. Cheers him up. Okay. Okay. Uh, moving on to item number ten, the forward work program. Forward work program is at page three two two. Sir Peter has been able to confirm that NIPSA whether they will attend next week to discuss public sector reform. Uh, apparently, the NIPSA general council election is underway. Uh, if this briefing was to be defer deferred, the committee might take the deferred briefing in free ports and state aid from raise. I think we should take that. Agreed. Uh, seek agreement to add a briefing from the Ulster University Economic Policy Centre and also from NIC IC2 oh, and Pivotal on the draft budget on the 10th of February. We are content. Yeah. Agreed. Remind members that the committee will be asked its views on accelerated passage from the budget number one bill 2021 on the 17th. A legal and procedural advice will be provided next week in closed session. Yep. And seek agreement to remove the remaining public sector reform briefings and see briefing on the PA report into capital projects until March and April. Are we agreed? Is this agreed? Agreed. Agreed. Now, uh, is the committee content with the draft forward work programme as amended? Say, are we agreed? Agreed. Agreed. And Peter, there was something you said you needed to amend something in our briefing earlier on, or have we covered that? You've, you've probably done it you've, with the uh, formal meeting with the minister. Uh, sorry, the speed with which we move here is absolutely stunning. <laughs> In that case, uh, AOB. Good. Right. Okay, team. Next uh, Wednesday, next Wednesday at uh, fourteen hundred here in the Senate Chamber, and uh, the meeting is hereby adjourned. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks, members. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly.